everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today, and I'm joined as always and forever by my good friend, my business partner, Mr. Jason Johnston Yellen. <laughs> I'm really genuinely touched. Always and forever. Thank I like you. To, I Thank like, you. I like to bring that one out every now and again because really, I. I know that it brings a smile to your face. Well, and, and this time we're actually sitting in the same hotel room in Glasgow, so you can even in real time see the smile that it brings to my face. That's not just me rubbing your nipples. <laughs> Josh, I'm trying to sit and enjoy a cup of tea here. No, those little plastic nipples that are on your suitcase, the... What are you talking about? You're too deep in the weeds. Mm. You're too deep in the weeds. Mm. <laughs> So it's 8 a.m., 8.30 a.m.? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, yeah, we're all, we've only been out one, two, three consecutive nights. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like our our voices have a hint, if you remember the old days of Whiskey Jubilee. I do, I do. And we would do the morning after podcast. I can't forget those. The morning after recap from some hotel... New York, Chicago, or Seattle, and and as I'm speaking to you this morning, I can hear that reverb in my throat that <laughs> that would only come from a, a whiskey jubilee night, but this was yeah. a Glasgow night. Yeah, it's the triple R, uh, the running ragged reverb in your voice. Oh wow! Yeah. Wow, that sounds like a band term or something like that. I think it's a scientific term. If it's come from you, I can guarantee you it's not a scientific term. It sounds Latin to me. <laughs> so do you want to say who we were with last night, who we're having a wee, a wee bit of fun with? Yeah, uh, regular listeners and even just recent listeners yeah. Yeah, yeah. might be happy to know that we were out with uh, the good Allie Walker. The very good. Of the Alistair Walker Whiskey Company. Indeed, indeed. And he was two episodes ago, two episodes ago. Yeah, you're asking the wrong guy. Because last episode was Gordon Bruce, and the episode before that was the good Allie Walker. Well, I'll say this then. We've mentioned him in three consecutive podcasts because the first one was his interview. Uh-huh. The second one was us having feedback mm-hmm. from him on mm-hmm. his feelings on the Indiana Jones series. You could just left it on his feelings. <laughs> feedback on his feelings. <laughs> And now here we are talking about being out with a man. So, gosh. Yeah. Ali Walker's become flavor of the month around mm. One Nation Under Whiskey podcasts. And Ali is delicious. What's wrong with you? You just said it was the flavor of the month. What's Flavors are delicious. I'm tired, Jason. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to lie to our listeners. <laughs> I don't want them to to think, you know, Joshua, He's this is him. You know, no, this is, this is me tired and punchy and... My nipples rubbed. Alistair Walker's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell is happening here? Oh my goodness! Whistle. I, we've said this many times in the past, but you can just imagine, you know, today's interviewee just listening to this intro and being like, "What the hell did I commit to? Why? Why are these numpties in charge of my brand now?" Well, listening back to our conversation uh, with with Pete Lynch, that's the subject of today's conversation, <laughs> and knowing. His potty mouth. Oh, he's 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 on the level, Jason. <laughs> he understands this is pro level here. My gosh, it's pro something. <laughs> um, 
So just just very quickly before we do a deep dive into Pete Lynch. No jokes, Josh. I wished. I, wished. Don't do say, don't even me? say I know what you can. Do you think we, of me? Stop talking. <laughs> I can't even hear you over me uh, rambling. I can't hear you, me over you. We when you're keep, talking, I just... This is, this is Friday morning, I think. Uh, January... 24. Oh, look at you. Who with a day? Oh, yeah, because mm-hmm. tomorrow's Burns Night. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we came into London on Tuesday. Uh, that would have been the uh, 21st. Correct. And we went to Compass Box. We did our, our day at Compass Box in yeah. Chiswick Park. Remarkable mm-hmm. time. Absolutely remarkable. And we had the great, great pleasure of, of speaking with John Glazer, of course. Of course. But we also spoke with a longtime supporter of this podcast, James Saxon, mm-hmm. who is now working with Campus Box. And, and I'm, I'm being cagey here because... Okay. We have the Glazer episode coming up on February 26, I think it is. Okay, so I'm throwing that's, the, that's the season four opener. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And that's yeah. what I wanted to say in this podcast. So please, uh, those long-term listeners who have, who have been with us from the beginning, thank you. Thank you so much. We always enjoy it. And those who are new to the podcast, thank you for joining us. We mm-hmm. do have a little treat for you with the John Glazer uh, episode. But I did want to say a special thanks to all of you who sent in your emailed questions or messaged questions. Or Facebook questions. For for John Glazer, we did put as many in front of him as we could. We also, over the course of our conversation with him, try to overlap our questions with some of the questions that had come in. Correct. And then we tried to kind of... Uh, name call. No, that's not the right word. No, name check. Name check, yes. Yeah, if yeah. we were Shouldn't call anybody calling. names. I've yeah, learned that, no. yeah. Don't bully, be best. I've learned that. <laughs> Hashtag be best. Yeah, that's new. That's new in the last few years. Uh, don't bully online or, or on a podcast. Isn't, so, that a, isn't he a singer? Justin be best? Oh, I love him. Yeah. Love him to bits. He's great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, terrible. So, so yeah, so that was, that was my way of saying A... We've been in the country. Uh, B, we had the pleasure uh, of the Compass Box Day. Yeah. And C, thank you for the support of sending in questions. Yeah, so, that was brilliant. So with that, with that said, uh-huh. Pete Lynch, Whistle Pig, focus of today's episode. Yeah, let's, before we yeah, back it discuss up. Back it up. Pete, who was... P-E-T-E, not P-E-A-T. Yeah, P-E-T-E. We're always up for a conversation about Pete, whether it's P-E-T-E or P-E-A-T. <laughs> or P-E-A-T, yeah. Uh, and though he was an, he was very much an integral part of our time with Whistlepig, I, I want to... Do, do we want to share a little bit with our listeners the experience we had at Whistlepig while we were... I'll, I'll say this. Yeah, okay. Yes, we do. Okay. However, oh boy, we don't want to say too much because I found in returning home to my family uh-huh. and telling them all about my trip, oh right, they they didn't want to hear all the details because it was really amazing, <laughs> really really amazing. <laughs> and as we and as I recounted how amazing it was, uh-huh. they were more kind of like, well, a we didn't go with you, and b. We didn't go with you. And C, and, and I don't think they brought this up before, 
they didn't go with me. And so <laughs> I, given that experience with my family, I don't really want to put the listener through the same thing. So, oh, because it was amazing. It, 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 we kept seeing it at the place. This is amazing. I know. And, and that's not even the proper word. I'm not sure they make words proper enough to, <laughs> to discuss how amazing it is. So are you suggesting that we keep our experience to ourselves and stop making people feel jealous about how amazing time I I think we, we can we can give a very brief outline so as not to belabor the point mm-hmm. that our experience was amazing. We never belabor anything. No, no, we're definitely not doing it right this <laughs> it, second. It, yeah, not I know at that all. much. <laughs> we're definitely not doing that. <laughs> so yeah, so so give a give a you know a, what does it say yeah. a, a ten thousand foot. Uh, yeah, get, how about we give you, them a snapshot? Snapshot. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, we were invited up to the Whistlepig farm to spend a couple days there. It was a couple days. Right. Uh, so you go up to Middlebury, Vermont, which is right in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I this was, think it says that on GPS as well. It does, and then it just shuts. And then it just shuts the fuck off. It's like you are in the middle of nowhere. Bye bye. Yeah. So we so we get to this farm. Uh, it, it is. It's a working farm that they have, growing rye, and then they have pigs there and other animals, and they're extracting maple sap to to do their own sugaring. Indeed. Uh, for, ma- for maple syrup and for other things, as you'll hear in our conversation with Pete. And what I what I really enjoyed before we got to their uh, premises was we received an itinerary, right? <laughs> and the itinerary was fantastic, right? It's 10 a.m. Uh, no, 8 a.m. You're going to have breakfast. At 10 a.m. You're going to meet with Pete and taste some casks. At 11 a.m. You're gonna go out and do some axe throwing, and <laughs> <laughs> it sounded very metal. <laughs> and then at one p.m. lunch, and so on and so forth. So it was a very well thought out itinerary for our two day stay there. And I think Mother Nature helped a little bit. You like that little dusting of snow? Well, yeah. So we got a few inches of snow to make it feel like this lovely winter. Wonderland stay on the on the Whistlepig Farm. Yeah, for a business trip, it felt like a retreat. And, it did, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And that was very special. I'll just give my own little snapshot of the thing that really cemented the experience for me. We'd driven up. Mm. It, there was snow on the ground. Mm. It was reasonably cold. And we show up at the house where we're going to be staying. And the very first thing they do is give you your slippers that will yes. be your slippers for the duration of your stay and then you'll take them home with you. <laughs> and really, anytime you can pitch up and someone gives you a pair of slippers, you know you're in the right place. Yeah, this is this is us putting anyone and everyone on notice. <laughs> yeah, right. If we come to your place and you don't offer us a pair of slippers. I'll be honest, I thoroughly enjoyed meeting John Glazer. I will never forget that he did not offer me slippers. Hashtag never forget. <laughs> Hashtag the struggle is real. Well, I'll tell you what they did have in common, though. 
they did give us a lot of alcohol in both places. So that's <laughs> they plied us. <laughs> I will always remember that. <laughs> but in a way, there was a bit of similarity uh, with regards to our time with Pete and our time with John Glazer and James Saxon. Oh, yes. In that we're between the three people I just named, they're all blunderous. Yep. Right? They all have a passion for blending. And our stay and our activities at the Whistle Pig Farm between the dinners and the tours and meeting the entire team, which was wonderful. You know, putting all that to the side, I do like that there's a connection between our last interview of season three and our first interview of season four. Yeah, no, that's nice. Uh, I like that, Joshua. That's nice insight. So getting to spend time with, with Pete and understanding how he blends and and not just not just his blending. I thought it was really interesting him coming on and he changed things from a logistics standpoint too, standardizing finishing times. Mm, which yeah. before I I don't think I'd go so far as to say it was willy nilly before. I don't think Whistlepig does anything willy nilly whatsoever. Especially when you had someone like Dave Pickerel who was in charge of, of basically designing the whiskey that was going into the bottles. Uh, there's nothing willy-nilly about that, but I really enjoyed hearing the insight from him, uh, him, Pete, yes. and saying, you know, we've, we've standardized our finishing times. We base our finishing times around what the weather is doing and the seasons and, mm. and, and hearing their use of Vermont oak, you know, so it's... We, we got we got to discuss blending and maturation and what Vermont oak does as opposed to Missouri oak and it was just it was a fascinating conversation. It was, and especially after we'd spent a morning sampling through casks for single cast nation selection and learning from him along the way. Yeah, and then being able to. F- I say focus, it's a long and long-ranging interview that we have with Pete. But we were able to do a a deeper dive Uh with Pete in the interview based off of what we'd been discussing all day. And we were deeply immersed in their casks, in their finishing program, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. tasting through some remarkable selections. So let me interrupt you here just really quickly, Jason, because I, I want to get to our conversation with Pete, which was actually pretty damn long I think regular listeners will be surprised to know that (laughs) (laughs) so we actually we split this conversation up into two bits the second bit being the smaller bit but I want to give listeners a mental picture of 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 what's happening in the room so in trying to figure out how we're going to frame this conversation and understand Pete's approach to blending and Dave Pickerel's approach to blending before him, we said, why not bring up some Whistlepig bottlings so we can get a full understanding of, of what they do between whiskey source from Alberta, source from MGP, from their own distillate, and, and their different finishing programs. And, and Pete was actually really good. He decided to bring up seven... All seven boss hogs or all like all of the boss hogs, right? He brought up every single boss hog that they had on site. And I thought it was a great way for him to discuss 
how they're going to finish a whiskey or how they're going to extra mature whiskey to get to a certain flavor profile and make it different year after year after year. So the conversation regarding blending and maturation is discussed through the lens of us tasting these different Exactly. You know, exactly. And, and it was it was a different way. You know, you and I went there, Samurai Scientists had just been released. And one of the things we do in in the podcast is we like to have a general conversation with the subject. We're not there to help them pitch something. No. We're we're no, never no. showing up at distilleries in time for new releases that then become the focus of the interview. Yeah. And it's funny because as I'm saying this, I just thought back to the Gordon Bruce episode when we tasted the 125th anniversary 16-year-old Annock. Yeah, yeah. And I never even thought to put in the disclaimer that we don't pitch up just to taste new releases. Sometimes (laughs) it coincides. Sometimes we just get lucky in that regard. And so, yeah, getting to dive into the the samurai scientist, and then have that in the context of the rest of the Boss Hogs. It was tremendous, an absolute treat. And I learned learned so much, so much, as I do in every interview. (laughs) Well, and the last thing I'll say before we head over to Pete is not, not only do we let our interviewees know, you know, we're not there just to to taste all the fancy samples and try all your new stuff. But for our listeners, our goal is never to pitch a brand's new stuff. Correct. Right? This is Correct. not an advertisement for it is the not. brands nope, nope, or nope, people. Nope, nope. No, this is just conversations and and we were learning about Pete and his processes through the, really the only way you can fully understand it, tasting his products, tasting the the fruits of his work. I will say though, if you give me a pair of slippers, right. I will pitch a brand. Like that's <laughs> that's exactly how to get me on your side. <laughs> You're gonna arrive home to a mailbox full of slippers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, dear brands, thank dear you very much. Brands, I like slippers. <laughs> he also likes Uggs, Sparkle Uggs. <laughs> I don't know what you just said. I'm not sure our listeners understand what I just like said. like spark plugs, but those go in your car, Uggs. not in your feet. Uggs. Sparkle Uggs. Uggs? <laughs> what's, what's sparkle? <laughs> what are sparkle Uggs? They're Uggs with sparkles on them. Oh, like cakes with splinters. Just cut all Jesus this Christ, no. Uh, this is terrible. Sprinkles is what I was trying to say. Pete, I apologize. Uh, let's move on to your conversation. Just cut all of this out. All right, without further ado, here is our conversation with the good Pete Lynch. So what's in our glass, Pete? So we are working on some recently released Boss Hog 6, okay, the right. Samurai Scientist from Whistlepig Whiskey. This is a hell of a whiskey, to say the least. I'm going to let you guys <laughs> taste a little bit okay. before I put too many thoughts in your mind. Okay. Well, I'll happily talk about, nosing it while you're describing it. Ah, good man, getting ahead of the game. <laughs> I will talk about the product itself, yeah, please. what it means to us as a company, yeah. what it's meant through the years. Yeah, the process, the inspiration. Precisely. Yeah, yeah. Good. So Boss Hog for us is not our oldest whiskey. It's not our highest proof whiskey. 
simply put, it is our best whiskey. That's okay. going to mean something different every year. We've kind of realized that we have these five tenants for Boss Hog that we stick to. It's always going to be cast strength. It's always going to be single barrel, single finish. It's always going to be something incredibly unique from what we've done before. It's always going to be something that's not going to burn the back of your throat. Cast strength for us doesn't just mean high proof at all. It mm -hmm. means high proof that drinks beautifully mm. and should be put in the bottle at that strength. Agreed. Last but not least, Dave Pickerel's last tenant was, it has to be stupendous, kind of speaks for itself there. Okay. Every year we've done something quite different with this product, though. We actually are fortunate enough to have a lot of them in front of us right now. We'll talk about them a little bit more, I'm sure, <laughs> potentially. Right now we're tasting number six, which is the most recent. And this is something I'm pretty proud of right now. It's just come out a couple months ago, uh, a couple weeks ago, rather. Been tasting people for a few months. And it's one of those things where as you're making a whiskey, you know, whether you think it's good or you think it's okay, until somebody else says yay or nay, you're quite yeah. worried. You know, you don't really sure. know. And even when 100 people say it's good or 1,000 people, yeah. you still have those doubts <laughs> until, you know, it really gets out there. So this one's been received very well. I mean, they typically always will be. I've been pretty pleased with how this came out. And not just in terms of reception, but how we actually went about making this product. Mm -hmm. So every year, Boss Hog is going to be different from the year before, yeah. from prior Boss Hogs on the whole. We'll talk about what's made each Boss Hog specific, and unique, but with this Boss Hog, we really kind of went a little bit further. We decided to really encapsulate the idea of collaboration in this industry and do something a little bit more than just a unique barrel finish or a special whiskey that's a little bit different than what you've seen. Okay. So we decided to really set our sights on Japan. We have a lot of connections there through Dave Pickerel, through a couple people in our business as well with breweries over there, with distilleries. So we had a couple options in terms of, you know, do we want to take a Japanese oak route? Do we want to try some shochu barrels? Do we want to work with umishu, which is a plum liqueur that's not really been seen? And we had the benefit of, first of all, trialing a few of these different things, and second of all, going to Japan to meet with these people, to speak to them, to see what we could really produce hand in hand. Because we wanted to get something from them, but we also wanted to give something back. This Boss Hog is unique in that we managed to achieve that. Okay. So this Boss Hog is finished in Umishu seasoned barrels. What does that mean exactly? Yeah. That's <laughs> hey, our turn to ask the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, that means a hell of a lot, actually. So what is Umishu first and foremost? Umishu is a plum liqueur, yep. generally pretty sweet, potentially digestif, aperitif. It's not really seen too widely outside of Japan, but it takes a while to make for a few reasons. Umishu is the third step in a long process of production, which begins typically mm. with sake. Okay. To make sake, we're effectively taking rice, we're yep. fermenting that rice, and we're making a type of beer or wine. However, we can take that beer or wine, and much like we do in whiskey mm -hmm. and in other spirits, we can distill it and mm -hmm. make a spirit. That spirit is then called shochu. Mm -hmm. Shochu can also come from other sources, uh, sources of starch, such as barley, sweet yeah, potato, sweet potato, etc. Yeah. Yep. Shochu is actually a very messy spirit when it's distilled and when it's aged in barrel. Yeah. What makes it unique is it's then charcoal filtered quite a bit to remove a lot of the color, remove a lot of the flavor, and make something similar mm. to what we might think of as a light whiskey. So what makes shochu shochu, one of the definitions, is that it's not too much like whiskey. Mm -hmm. That's step two. Step three in terms of producing a mishu is first we go into the orchard. We take these ume plums, small, tart, bitter, a little bit sweet, really nice and fruity, mm. 
We take these plums and we basically stick them in a big old container that has shochu base. Generally pretty light in flavor, not too aggressive, about 35% ABV. Okay. We add in sugar as well, and we let that sit. That's the umishu aging process, which typically will last for about three to six months. You'll notice there was no mention of a barrel. Yes. Yeah. This aging is more of a maceration type deal, where the sugar and the plum and the shochu are all mingling, increasing in complexity. However, three to six months is not too much time. What makes the umishu that we use, and this is coming from Kataya Brewery, uh, fantastic brewery that's making all of these products, everything in between. Mm-hmm. A couple of really unique things that I had not even heard of, but world-class umishu that's aged for 11 and a half years. So this umishu has so much more time to sit to really add complexity to its its profile, to really deepen in structure, and to give us something that's a little bit more than just a you know a sweet aperitif or something like so that. So at this point, they're putting that into cask. So too. again. There is no use of cask in Umishu production, which is what okay. makes this collaboration truly unique. Okay. We went and we said, okay, we've got Vermont oak, which is something unique to us. We're harvesting oak from the region around our farm in Vermont oh, in general. Okay. We're sending that out to our Cooperage partners, independent stave company. Yeah. They're seasoning those casks or those uh, logs and they're making those into casks for us. Gives us a unique aging profile. Mm-hmm. Typically, most of the wood that's going into barrel making is coming from the south central region of the U.S. Yeah. Great, great wood, but it's all pretty similar. Up in Vermont, we've got a much, much shorter growing season, which means that our trees are going to have, effectively speaking, rings that are much closer together. Mm -hmm. We can look at it pretty simply that for every millimeter that we penetrate into the wood, we're pulling that much more flavor out. It's almost more like a French oak barrel than it is an American oak uh, barrel with a tighter okay. grain, a finer grain rather than a Just because grain. of the temperature up here, Precisely. shorter growing season. Okay. The way that trees okay. grow is effectively we're stacking cones on each other. And the cones will grow up and out, but they can only grow so far up and out depending on how long the growing season is. Yeah, Winters okay. are very long, very harsh up in Vermont. We might only have four months of growing season, which actually translates to maturation as well. Mm-hmm. So we kind of have this double-edged sword of these Vermont oak casts with a lot of extractives to give, but a much milder maturation season. So we're only pulling compounds for so many months. So we're not mm. going to overwhelm this whiskey, but yeah. we're going to pull very unique flavor compounds out of that. So to tie back to the boss hog, we basically said, hey, Umishu is not a barrel-aged product. Mm-hmm. We've never really seen barrel-aged Umishu out there in the world. And we think it would be pretty delicious to finish some whiskey in this, specifically the whiskey that we're tasting now. Okay. It was a matter of trialing it next. So we brought some Umishu back over. We basically stuck it into our brand new toasted charred Vermont oak barrels. Oh, okay. Let it season for a few months. Let them outside. Let the sun bake on them. Really soak in there. It was a fine line between really getting that flavor to impact these casts, but not overwhelm it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When it comes to finishing, generally speaking at Whistlebig, we want to add a top note. We want to deepen that nuance. We want to really add some complexity, but we want to preserve the flavor of the base whiskey. Otherwise, we're going to totally change that nature, that identity, and yeah. give you something that might taste a little bit less like a whiskey and more like the product it was finished in. Which not is what thing. you want to avoid. Precisely. So, it's yeah. not necessarily a bad thing, but it doesn't stay true to the nature of that whiskey, which is what we're trying mm-hmm. to do here. So it was a few months seasoning that barrel, about two to three, dead of summer, soaking in there. And okay. it was a very short barrel finish. This sat in cast for a month and a week. Did your summer behave in that regard? Was it hot? Did you get to bake your cast? Precisely, they, yeah. There weren't too many rainy days in no. your Vermont summer? So Vermont is pretty much the worst climate in the world. We've got eight months of winter. It's raining. It's snowing nonstop. And then we have the most humid, hot, terrible summer. It'll rain, but it'll mostly just feel like you're (laughs) swimming through the air. You know, this summer was particularly pretty brutal. 
I mean, I always complain about being cold in the winter in the distillery. Then summertime comes, and I wonder what I was even worried about. <laughs> Jesus Christ, it gets hot in there. Yeah, you're basically sitting next to some 200-degree boilers and, you know, hanging out in there. Yeah, yeah. But uh, we let this season for about two, three months, depending on the cask. Some were dumped a little earlier because, again, we're not just seasoning the cask. If you think about it like sherry season barrels, you're thinking about it wrong because the goal of seasoning cast with sherry is to make sherry barrels. We also wanted to make barrel-aged Yeah. So it's a matter of finding the fine line of when does this Umishu hit its fine point. Mm-hmm. And in particular, being in a brand new charred toasted cask, something very unique. Typically, if you're going to age something like a fortified wine, a liqueur, yeah. it's going to be in a toasted cask at most. Not going to be a lot of charring action going on there. Okay. It gave us some, not necessarily what you'd expect, uh, extracts in that actual Mishu. Gave it some vanilla, though. A little bit of sort of nice minerality. What's the ABV of it? ABV in a Mishu can vary. It's yeah. about 14%, though. Okay, so similar to what a sake Precisely. would be, even though they distilled it. Because I just want to make sure. They, t- they took the sake, they distilled it, produced a shochu, then got the plums. So when you produce shochu, you charcoal filter it, most shochu tends to be 20 to 28% alcohol. Something like that, yeah. Um, so they lost ABV over the 11-ish years. So that- I guess that's a bit of a misnomer on my part. In reality, the shochu that they use for this specific umishu is yeah. made only for this umishu. It's called oh. Sanibori shochu. Okay. It's okay. a very heavy style. goes through the same process of barrel maturation. yeah. yeah. And charcoal filtration, mm-hmm. but it is trending at a higher percentage. Additionally, shochu might come off the still. I mean, it will depend on the producer, but anywhere from 30% up. Yep. And it's just a matter of what's your fill strength. Yep. And then after maturation, what are we bottling this at? So most mm-hmm. shochu is probably going to be at a higher ABV than 20 to 28% mm-hmm. when it comes out of the cask. However, when it's dis- when it's going exactly. into the bottle, it'll get brought down. Yep. As producers, typically speaking, the higher the proof we have, the less barrels we need. So yep. it's almost behooving these people to have a slightly higher proof okay. aging profile. And, I mean, it depends on the house style, I'd say. You put any sort of spirit into the cask at a certain ABV, you'll get a different interaction mm. with that cask itself. Depending on what the house style is, they're going to want something a little higher, something a little lower. If they okay. want more or less extract. All right. I, I'm sorry. I, I, I put a wrench into, <laughs> into your works here. You're going to have to and, remind uh, me where I was. Yeah. <laughs> Can you remind me where to remind you? Or? I'll try. I'll try my best. <laughs> well, actually, I, while you're thinking about that, sure. or maybe while he's thinking about that, when you first started describing Boss Hog, Boss Hog just as a product in and of itself, you described it as a single barrel, single finish product. Now, earlier on, we were walking around the facility and you said, well, Boss Hogs, you're going to get somewhere around 15,000, 16,000 bottles for the world. That's a bit more whiskey than a single barrel could hold. So how, from a process standpoint, how are you, if this is single barrel... Do you have a bunch of different single barrels that you're working with? And how do you, as an organization, keep track of barrel one, two, three, four, five? That is a great question. So naturally speaking, if we're producing that many bottles, it's not coming from one cask. Yeah. Single barrel means that the whiskey is coming from one barrel. Single finish means it's coming from one finishing cask. However, to produce this volume, we have anywhere from 30 to 60 to 90 barrels, depending on the size of the cask. 
that means that each cask and they're numbered on the label itself will okay. give you a unique version of boss ah. so we're aiming for a specific flavor profile but we're there also allowing variability within that flavor profile mm. precisely go. so yeah. you'll see okay. listed different barrel numbers uh with corresponding proofs as well yeah some of the differentiation will come from the different proofs but more so just the simple magic of maturation where we'll have a unique sort of environment happening in each barrel one thing that made this finish unique too, and this is something a little, little unusual, is we underfilled these barrels purposefully to add a little extra headspace, a little more oxidation. Yeah, okay. Allow a little bit more aromatics to kind of come out and play. Mm -hmm. It's almost like we let the whiskey open up like it does in a glass, just before yeah. it got to the glass, in a sense. Yeah. Um, each of these barrels, though, will either pull more oak, pull more of that umishu flavor, pull less, might stay more true to that base whiskey flavor. That's sort of the fun of it tasting through these different casks and typically mm. speaking, you know, different parts of the country will get different casks. So if you're somewhere in Chicago, then you go over to, you know, Minneapolis, you might see mm -hmm. a different cask of Bossog and you taste it and you'll see uh, flavor variation, but appreciably so. Mm -hmm. We're never going to put something in a bottle that tastes so different that it doesn't fit the identity of yeah, that boss right. hog. Yeah. Okay. So it's a matter of controlling these casts. And I mentioned it was a variable finish of one month to one month and a week. That's because each cast is going to need a bit of a different sure. time. Okay. Might need a dump on this day. Might need a dump three days later. Might have been needed to dump a day before. So we're dumping that ASAP. Depends on the barrel. Depends on each barrel, what it okay. needs to achieve and, and when we think it's gotten there. Okay. So, so big picture here because we've been walking around all day tasting this cask finish and that cask finish and and so on. And, and something, a, a common thread throughout our conversation and throughout everything we drank was that the finishes ranged anywhere from eight to nine days, depending on the type of wood, to maybe a little over a month, maybe two months. All of your finishes seem to be quite short, but incredibly impactful. And I'm curious, is that the malleability of the Alberta rye that you're using, the MGP rye that you're using, or is it a function of uh, the, the climate in Vermont? Like, How is it that such a short finish is being so impactful on your spirit? That's a great question. And I love when people ask where flavor comes from specifically or even better assume where flavor comes from. I like to tell them, unless you're the guy who made that whiskey every step of the way, it's tough to say where it comes from. Yeah. However, in this instance, we're looking at it on a lot of different levels. Number one, each base whiskey before it goes into any finishing barrel mm -hmm. is going to need to be treated quite differently. If it's coming from Alberta, if it's coming from MGPI, if it's coming from anywhere in the world, even the same distillery, just a different batch, you need yeah. to look at it differently. We observe that base whiskey. You get an idea of it. Is it sweeter? Is it drier? Is it more fruit forward? Is it more spice forward? Yeah. And therefore, what does that translate to a specific cask? I could put two different types of base whiskey in the same exact finishing cask and have completely different finishing times sure. for very different reasons. However, when it comes down to it, we're typically looking for a few things when we finish whiskey. First of all, we're looking to add a nice top note. We're looking to add some complexity, but we're not trying to completely change the identity of this, as I kind of said earlier. That's going to mean that each cask has to be treated quite a bit differently. Mm. As you mentioned, some of our finishes in our sort of single finish program have been as short as nine days, eight days, because yeah. that's all that it took yeah. to pull in sometimes massive amounts of flavor into this whiskey to get what we're looking for. Yeah. On the flip side, some whiskeys have aged for three, four months plus. 
we're achieving that same end result. We're not totally transforming that whiskey. Yeah. We're not really ruining it with an abundance of extra flavor, but we are enhancing it. We're elevating it. Mm. Why is it so different? It's going to be a few different factors. First of all, it's going to be that spirit or wine that we're using. If it's a very aggressively flavored spirit or wine, mm-hmm. if it's a smoky scotch, for instance, we may yeah. not want to leave it in there too long. That flavor yeah. impact is going to come pretty quickly. Sure. If it's a Chardonnay barrel, might want to be in there for a little bit longer, especially if we're looking at a rye that's pretty bold in flavor. Those flavor extracts will not come out as quickly because they won't be as present in the uh, overall flavor profile. Yeah. Yeah. Another factor is cast size. Typically speaking, we feel a lot safer the larger the cask is, leaving it in there longer. Sure. Because we are worried about pulling oak extracts mm-hmm. from this cask, not just the actual spirit that was in it before or wine. And we've already been aging in new charred oak for quite a while at this point. We're not necessarily looking to pull that much wood. Yeah. And additionally, something a little more niche, the cask may have a little bit too much wood to offer. A wine cask only had low ABV in it. It didn't necessarily pull as many compounds from the wood. So then when I put whiskey in it at a much higher strength, yeah. we're potentially going to pull a lot of unconverted tannin and sort of negative wood compounds. Think pencil shavings, think sawdust that you don't mm-hmm. really want in your whiskey. It's a matter of that. And additionally, too, again, what are we looking to make? I mentioned we could finish two different base whiskeys for two different times in the same type of cask and get very different results. You mm-hmm. can do that with the same base whiskey, totally different finishing lengths if we want to either bring out a little more of that sweetness. Say it's a, a fortified wine barrel. Maybe three weeks in that cast will give us just a little bit of vanilla, a little bit of honeyed sweetness on the front end, a little bit on the finish as well. On the flip side of that, if I want to pull a lot of the French oak character and add some structure as well and a little bit of sort of zing on the finish, mm. I might leave that in there for quite a bit longer. Seasonally, too, we'll have quite a bit of impact. As sure. we mentioned, pretty wild temperature swings up here. It's going to affect what we're pulling. So in the summertime, mm. we're going to be more apt to pull wood compounds from that cast, just oh, a higher okay. rate of chemical action because yeah. of a higher temperature. On the other side of things, during the winter, I feel a lot better about finishing whiskey for a bit longer as I'm less apt to pull too much of that wood. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yep. That so. makes good sense. It's, yeah. It's really, you got to treat every whiskey as a unique sort of project and you can't just lump it all into one. So with that said, pivoting back to the samurai scientist in front of us here, as I'm sitting here sipping it while listening to you and, and being educated, thank you very much, <laughs> uh, I'm getting this kind of wood presence, this Vermont oak that you were talking about, some of that spiciness plus the rye spiciness to the front of the palate, but then it's got that plum sweetness to the back of it. And I feel like today in, in tasting so many casks with you, I'm seeing a, a pattern of rye to the front, sweetness to the back, as you now taste the Samurai Scientist, is this representative of, of what you're looking for, of what your expectations are when you're finishing, as we're just talking about the finishing just now? I mean, I would hope so, because <laughs> <laughs> it's all done. It's all in bottle at this point, so I really hope so. Oh, but- this, is, this didn't turn out. Oh, this is terrible. This tastes like what? <laughs> I, in, in earnest, though, I couldn't be happier with how it turned out. Again, you're always a little cautious, a little worried about, okay, I think it's great, but does everybody else? Mm -hmm. And with this, really, step one for this was finding the most perfect base whiskey for this project possible. Keeping that age statement, keeping that 16 years plus, keeping the flavor profile, keeping that idea of, okay, this whiskey needs to also continue to be this good after it goes through not just a new Mishu cask, but a brand Mm. new toasted and charred cask that had a Mishu. Putting all these things together, 
really wanting to preserve the space flavor and also elevate it a bit, as you mentioned, that Emishu does come through in the most perfectly slight ways. Back mm-hmm. palate tartness, a little bit of yeah, fruitiness, a yeah. little bit of sweetness, aromatics on the nose as well, a little bit of wood sugar interaction too. This whiskey is a really good example of preserving that base whiskey flavor. Okay. Very short finish, but the base whiskey itself is very bold in flavor. It's very, it's actually after 16 years, very grain forward, surprisingly mm. so. Good amount mm-hmm. of rye spice in there. Mm-hmm. A lot of oak spice too, a lot of oak structural compounds as well. So you get a lot of mouthfeel components. One thing I will mention about this too is we're looking at about 120 to 122 proof. As most cask strength whiskeys deserve, this enjoys quite a bit of time in the glass to open up. Mm-hmm. A couple mm-hmm. drops of water. I like to sit and bring this down to 118 over time, 115, and really see how it evolves. There are layers of complexity here. However, it also drinks pretty beautifully just as yeah, it is. It really and, does. And, and as we've said many, many times, as Josh and I are texture guys, and as we swirl this in the glass, it's got beautiful oils collecting okay. around the mm-hmm. side of the Glencairn. As it then layers the palate, it's dropping those layers of flavor that you're talking yeah. about. And as we are sitting here talking, I'm just enjoying that buildup of flavors, but also feeling it really layering and oiling and oiling up my tongue as well. I hear you. On the inside of my cheeks. Well, it's the uh, tasting experience is more than just flavor. Yeah. It's palate weight. It's mm-hmm. mouthfeel. It's how does it feel quite exactly. literally? Is yeah. it sharp? Is it hurting me? If it's hurting me, that's a negative experience. <laughs> it might have the best flavor in the world, but if it burns the back of that palate, then maybe yeah. I don't want it. Yeah. That's a really good point there. We do have such great mouthfeel components. The spice is there not just as a flavor component, but also as a textural component. Mm. It's got palate weight to it. It's not overly astringent in terms of wood compound, though, which you might fear after 16 years and then a finish in a brand new charred oak. Mm -hmm. It really does serve to elevate that flavor, too. Whiskey that tastes good but is thin on the palate is a little bit disappointing in a lot of ways. Yep. I'm always happy when a whiskey, I mean, visually, I love to look at legs. Oils are great. But if it then doesn't translate to the palate, then it doesn't quite go the extra mile there. But yeah, yeah, it's a letdown, yeah. The palate weight, the structure, the way that it feels, the body it has are just important as flavor. It's something that people take for granted as well. Something that people enjoy without realizing they enjoy. Don't know how to describe, Mm, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that I've noticed over the past now, now two days. That, well, we've been here for about 24 hours. Exactly, yep. Yeah, almost 24 hours. Tasting piggyback, tasting the 10-year-old, which I've been familiar with uh, for a while, and uh, some of the 12-year-old, and then some of the finishes. Even though you are starting off with some base spirits that are from different producers, there's something so whistle-piggy about them. And you're not the only producer that is starting off with a base spirit of MGP rye or per, perhaps some Alberta rye, but your stuff is very unique to you. When you're getting your base spirit, is it if you're buying it from MGP rye, are they storing it up there or do you have your own warehouses where you want to maybe store it uh, here in Vermont or here in New York and therefore the maturation is different. So therefore your base is always going to taste different from someone else's base. I hear what you're saying. Yeah. It's a little bit of a few things. So we definitely try to, and look to bring all of our whiskey down to our area as quickly Mm. as we can from the day that we own it. 
that's going to mean a few things. That's going to mean we've had whis- have whiskey that's sat on this farm for seven, ten years. That means yeah. we've had whiskey that's only sat on this farm for a week before it goes in the bottle. As oh, we've okay. grown, as we've built warehousing, it's been more feasible, more possible for us to bring it down here. And you're right that it does absolutely impact our flavor profile. It's got it, It's yeah. a totally different climate from where it was before. It's really going to give it, in a sense, that terroir of that, that aging profile mm-hmm. where we're getting these shorter growing seasons, these hot, humid summers, and really tweaking things a bit. So that's definitely going to speak to our house style, in a sense. In a more almost abstract way, I want to say that the house flavor, the recognition of the Whistlepick style, is almost that of innovation, in a sense, where... We're not the only people doing this, but we're doing it in a way that, at least on the flavor side, sets us apart. And yeah. you taste a well-made rye, and you almost know that it's Whistlepig for that reason. Mm-hmm. And we're not the only ones doing it, but we're doing it in a specific way. Yes. You taste the 10-year. You taste the Bossog 6. You taste the 15-year. You know it's Whistlepig, even yeah. if you're blind, you know, whatever yeah. it's going to be. Yeah. On the flip side of that, you taste the 12-year as well, and that's still very much Whistlepig. The flavor profile couldn't be more different, but that's our identity as a brand, as a company. Exactly. Yeah. And that's one of my most sort of favorite things about working for the company. One of the things I guess I feel most privileged about is yeah. that we have so many different sides of rye. Ten years ago, we had only a couple ryes available in the well, you know, barely legal rye, not bad at all, but mm. just very spice-forward, one note, not too adventurous. Rye can be so much more than that, but people just don't know that because we've yeah. never had an opportunity to taste rye in this way, to taste rye that's sweet, that's fruity, that's grassy, It's that's always herbal. been straightforward. Precisely. Yeah, yeah. And this this exists out there. You know, much like bourbon, we think of bourbon, oh, it's sweet and it's nutty, but bourbon can be so different depending <laughs> on what corn you use, depending that's on how you true. distill it, how you ferment it, barrel <laughs> sure. type, et cetera. So it's really a privilege to be able to, even at a trade show, get five minutes of somebody's time tasting through three of our products that are night and day from each other, all 100% rye or close yeah. to it, and they came to me saying, oh, I don't like rye. And when they leave, guess what? They, did, yeah, they like realized that. they didn't know what rye was, and yeah. they do enjoy yeah. it quite a bit. With that said, can you speak a little bit to the whistle pig 12-year-old that's got the three distinct cask finishes going Absolutely. on in there? Talk a little bit to why the numbers are the numbers. Absolutely. So Whistlepig 12-year-old was our sort of second mainstay product after the 10-year-old. It is a bit of a sweeter side of the rye spectrum, which we don't expect to see. And that's for a few reasons. The base whiskey itself is a bit fruitier. It's a bit Mm. sweeter. It's a bit more on the baking spice side of spice, where we've got these sort of chocolate notes, these nutmeg notes, these cinnamon notes, and whatnot. However, it's also finished in three separate dessert wine casks. That's going to be Madeira, Mm. Sauterne, and Port. And it's then married together in set percentages. So these are individual finishes rather than a triple finish of the same whiskey. Gotcha. We then take 63% Madeira, 30% Sautern, 7% Port as a blend. Hmm. And every bottle of 12-year ends up that way. The reason for that is we effectively spent God knows how long R&Ding. And this, for us, R&D means any number of things. We've got a great network of bartenders, of industry personnel across the world at this point that I will send samples to just to get their take on it. You know, when it comes to making a blended product like this, it's running blending seminars, you know, literally crowdsourcing out these blends, something we've done for Farmstock, which was another blended product. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We basically come to you, give you the port, Madeira, Sautern. We talk about it and we talk about blending. We taste the whiskeys and say, all right, make me your best version. Wow. And, you know. To put it super simply, those are great data points. This is what the people want to taste. And it's a matter of trialing and trialing and trialing and going back to it, trying things day in, day out, month mm. in, month out, getting a full picture of what the best version of this product is going to be. And for us, that landed at those percentages. 
one thing that's a little bit cool about the 12 year is we take it one step further and allow accounts to try to prove us wrong effectively. Mm. They come in, they say, all right, 6337 is all well and good, but fuck you guys. I want to do my own. <laughs> and they kind of make their own bespoke blend, if you will. And that's uh-huh. one of our sort of private barrel extensions. It's a little more unique. You don't really maybe see at too many other distilleries, but it makes us a little more fun, you know, a little more almost personalized in a sense. Has, has anyone surprised you with their fuck you blend? <laughs> ha, ha, have you had a moment when F-U-B? you've said like, F-U-B? oh, wow, if you drop the Madeira way down and you increase the Sauterne, or have you or have you mostly thought for your palate and for your um, taste buds that it still resides with the, the percentages you've got? If they surprise me, I Definitely did a very good job of pretending like they didn't because, again, 63%, 30%, 7% is the best version of the play. <laughs> no, uh, you're, I mean, again, it's different strokes for different folks where some people come in and they want a port bomb and they'll yeah. put as much port as possible yeah. in there. And That was my it, thinking. When I see 7% port, I think, wow, you could really run with that. Precisely. And do something completely different. Exactly. But it oftentimes ends up proving people quite wrong. Uh-huh. There's a reason that we don't have 20% port in our our final finish in our final marriage rather and there's also a reason that we caution you against putting too much in but oftentimes you can't realize that until you actually taste it however there have been some interesting things coming out of this and sometimes it's a a blend of two inputs it's a blend of sauterne and Mm. port or it's a blend of madeira and sauterne it's a little bit different you know it's maybe not as complex but it's unique and it's in its own right, its own whiskey, and something very different. And as somebody with a sweet tooth, I very much enjoy those sorts of things. We've also done some larger projects, unique sort of one-off type deals where we've added in another finish. Mm, so, for instance, uh, okay. I did a, a pretty fun project with some chefs across the country recently. Basically, made a special blend. I brought them to the farm, tasted through these finishes, worked in an Oloroso sherry finish as well, okay. and tweaked those percentages. And I'm actually now worried that people are going to like that blend too much and we're going to have to change it. But oh well. Wow. <laughs> it's the nature of the beast, you know. So as you talk about bringing chefs to the farm, Josh and I are, are lucky enough to be hosted at the Whistlepig Farm right now and started our day with a, a little tour around the premises, ended up in the, the sugar shack uh, to begin our day. And Josh, who treated us very, very kindly. Not uh, to be confused with Joshua. Yeah. Shua. Shua. Shua over there. Shua. Shua over there. Vermont Shua. Josh poured us a little project from ah. on the farm that was a, a maple, uh, maple spirit Fire rum. Josh. <laughs> what? <laughs> Do you, can, can you talk a little bit about maple Absolutely. spice rum? Because that seems like we're in Vermont, we're in remote Vermont, we're in snowy Vermont, and we're tasting rum in a tiki Precisely. hut, yeah. which is a black cognitive dissonance was high. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. But we'd had a breakfast cocktail, so we were rolling with anything. Um, so, I like your style. <laughs> so yeah, maple spice rum, yeah, what, yeah. how, and where and why? Yeah, so I mean, I want to just emphasize the tiki shack is literally a tiki shack. It Our maintenance manager, Jeremy Palmer, quite literally built a tiki bar with spam hanging from fishnets and the ceiling and everything like that. And it's, it's Fantastic. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you never in a million years would expect that to be in there. In fact, Josh will bring people in there, blindfold them, yes. have them feel things and say, what the hell are you in right now? And they will never guess because who would think, but that maple spirit, that sort of maple rum is a example of a product that we're kind of, you know, whether super low key, small production, just mm-hmm. a one off, whatever it's going to be. We're always trying something different, new, 
you were in the distillery earlier. We were smelling beer. It's yeah. because we're distilling some beer from a brewery yeah. partner of ours. The maple spirit is an extension of our sort of maple syrup line where we've been sugaring on the property for quite a while. Mm-hmm. If you're unfamiliar, sh- unfamiliar with sugaring, it's effectively the process of taking sap from trees, in this case maple trees, boiling that down into maple syrup. Mm-hmm. It is a very, very ancient and much like barrel making, there's no better way to do it quite yet. You just kind of <laughs> hang out for 15 hours and... You know, smoke cigars and drink whiskey or something yeah, like that. Yeah. <laughs> but it was kind of a natural extension of this where we're like, all right, we've got maple syrup. We hate money. Let's spend a ton of money and make rum that's going to like, you know, be the most expensive thing to make ever. We took maple syrup. We added some water in there to bring down the sugar content. We did a long ferment with a couple different yeast types, about two to three weeks or so, which we yeah, we were pretty angry about having less fermenter space. But oh, well, you know, it's the nature of R&D, if you will. We've only done about two to three batches of it. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where we only make so much by happenstance that it all gets consumed by you guys on the farm. Thank you. You'll never see it out there in the world, but yeah. it's one of these, and there are so many things like this. We've distilled, as odd as it sounds, we've distilled kombucha and we've made a rum from kombucha, sort wow. of uh, the alcohol derived from kombucha. And it's really different, really weird. I don't know where the hell I'd put it on a shelf if I had to, so we probably never will. But you come to the farm, we'll definitely taste you on it, you know. Wild. Yeah. And, and you just said two to three week fermentation? Exactly. So there's just nothing moving in there? So it's a much slower movement, if you will. Um, it's a much, it, it's just a very different medium. It's mostly okay. sugar and water and some sort of nutrients you might have added in. Whereas when we're distilling or sorry, fermenting grain mash, we're going to have the physical grain in there. We're going to have a lot of amino acids, a lot of proteins, a lot of just nutrients in general. Ah, for the yeast to consume. The nutrient. Precisely. Additionally, the sugar content of a rum ferment is going to be much higher. It's a lot more to ferment period. Mm-hmm. And then last, I mean, there's so much more to making rum, but in general, you want to have more than just the sugar ferment. We want to get some organic acids produced in there. So the yeast being stressed mm-hmm. over time will create some, off flavors, organic acids, which then, when put in a barrel, will age out into delicious flavors. Effectively okay. speaking, these organic acids and alcohols mix together, yeah. and they give us, going from a barnyard sort of sweaty flavor to a nice fruity estuary flavor. Okay. Uh, that's a classic sort of, we call it a dunder sort of rum, where you add in something to this rum, whether it's banana peels or dead animals or something like that. Classic Caribbean technique. For us, it's just, we let it just hang out in our open fermentation, our distillery, where there's all kinds of native yeast coming through yeah. and, you know, the wind blows and we're kind of in the middle of nowhere in the woods. Yeah. We get 50 different types of yeast coming through. So that adds a bit of complexity there. It's a longer ferment for that reason. It's a much slower ferment, obviously. Um, and, you know, it's one of those where you can make some decisions. You can let a ferment sit for a bit longer, have the yeast potentially clean up after themselves a bit. You could actually potentially encourage other microbes to come in though if you do that and get a worse product yes it's kind of uh you know it's kind of a you're 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 gambling a little bit i suppose but for us it's more of a you know we're just trying something new the product comes out how it did we distilled it a bit cleaner too so we didn't necessarily plan to barrel ages for too long it's been in a new charred toasted oak cask vermont oak actually for what you tasted was about a year old probably won't spend too much time other than that because again we're tasting it out to you guys on the farm here. Sure. So, yeah. But, yeah. Just a little kind of, if we were making rum in earnest in a larger volume, then it'd be quite the operation for sure. We'd need a lot more fermentation. We'd probably have our own Vermont dunder pit going here, which we kind of do in the form of composting, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, but it's a fantastically 
local product. Precisely. You, you can see the trees that you're bringing the maple syrup from or the sap. Oh, yeah. That then becomes the maple syrup exactly. that you've sugared on site to then yeast plus additional yeast mm-hmm. going on to then storing it in a Vermont Precisely. oak barrel. That's a in fantastic. a shack. That's a fantastic product, I but it is that. interesting that it speaks to how expensive it would potentially be if you put it on a shelf. Exactly. And it's one of those, it's just the kind of, we can, we want to, so we will. Yes, you know? yes. And the flavor profile of that rum, too, is a bit different. It's more Vermont-centric than you might ever expect a rum could be. Yeah, oh, 100%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I finished my Samurai Scientist. We've got the other Boss Hogs That's on the, the table. Man. What would you recommend I pour, given that I've now got Samurai Scientist on my palate? That's a great question. I would fire it back at you and ask you what you're in the mood for. Do you want something that's a little bit heavier, a little bit sweeter? Not sweeter. If s- spicier, maybe sure. a little more savory. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Drier, a little more wood forward, I'm maybe. Take a quick break. I'm going to hit you with a triple one, actually. Okay, triple one. So this is kind of the boss hog that wasn't a boss hog, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Triple sure. one came out earlier on in our, our sort of uh, history, do. if you will. It's kind of a funny product when you look at it because it's 11 years old. It was kind of released close enough to 2011 and it's 111 proof and it just seems kind of like a gimmick until you taste it and you're like, holy shit. This whiskey for me, given when it came out, is a much better whiskey than I think a lot of people give it cre- give credit to. Okay. So to put it in perspective, if we look back in time, back to 2010, 2011, there's not that many ryes out there, and yeah. cast strength ryes with age on them in particular. We have all the boss hogs in front of us. Uh, I was telling you guys earlier, not all boss hogs are created equal. Mm-hmm. Boss hog one, for instance, is not necessarily my favorite whiskey, but at the time it was incredibly admirable for what it is. It's close to 140 proof. It's almost 13 years old. It's 100% rye. It was unlike anything at the time by wow. leaps and bounds. Now, when we taste it against boss hog six, five, four. We might look at it a little differently, but for the time period, for what it mm. was, I mean, you could not find anything like this anywhere. Gotcha. And so Triple One yeah. came right after Boss Hog One, which Boss Hog One, great whiskey, but speaking to that single sort of barrel nature, some of the barrels might be a little more fiery, you know, might be Got a little it. hotter, might not be necessarily geared towards cast strength because it's a bit too hot. It's a bit okay. too sharp. It's too for lack of a better term, boozy in a sense. Mm-hmm. With triple one, we really found first barrels that are going to drink better at this specific proof. And additionally, it was a bit of a smaller release too. It was a hundred, it was a uh, thousand, 111 bottles. There we go. So a bit <laughs> okay. of a smaller release. Yeah, right. A lot of ones there. I know <laughs> bit of a smaller release, but this should be at 111 proof. And you take a sip of it, you get the aromatics on the nose, you get the finish too. This likes some water, it likes some time. But this mm. was the first sort of step in the right direction for us in terms of identifying what Boss Hog means to us, what cast strength, single barrel, etc., means to us. And it evolved as we go on. So Boss Hog 1, oh. 12 and 3 quarters years old, great whiskey. Honestly, it's a bit too jet fuel for me. Typically speaking, these ADL whiskeys at around this age like to drink closer to 120 proof, 125. Case in point, Boss Hog 6 is clocking it around there, and it drinks beautifully. Mm. At this higher proof point, you've got a lot more flavor to work with, but the consumer doesn't always know that. You may take one sip of cast strength and hate it and never want to go back to it. You don't know that you add in a couple drops of water and let it sit, and it's one of the best whiskeys you've ever had. Hmm. With that in mind, Triple One was a much more approachable idea of rye because this, these two ryes, early 2010, 11, 12, were challenging 
beyond belief because again, mm. the 10 year at a hundred proof, 10 years old was a very challenging rye for people to taste delicious, but they'd never tasted anything like it. Yeah. So then yeah. offer these was, I mean, admirable in a sense. And the fact that it has come to be what it is really speaks to the way the markets received it. Mm-hmm. As we go on boss hog to the spirit of Mortimer, we start to kind of deepen our complexity in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm not just as a company with personnel, but also with what we're putting out. So by this point, we're working on 12 year behind the scenes. We're trying different finishes. We're also getting to know our inventory a lot better. Mm. Bossog 2 was a 13 year old whiskey. It was closer to about 125 proof. So drank a little bit cleaner, a little bit, not easier per se, but it felt more right. And we can taste this hmm. in a bit here, but it's a, we're trending now. We're mm-hmm. seeing this sort of increase, this, idea of definition, if you will. And yeah. behind the scenes too, we're growing up as a company. I mean, we made some jokes earlier. We mentioned some of our practices back in the day using broomsticks and saran wrap. And you know, <laughs> maybe around here, we're not using broomsticks and saran wrap anymore. Maybe uh-huh. We're using Bruce spoons or something. I, think like. I saw that movie. <laughs> broomstick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a classic. Actually. Yeah, volume think, seven. Uh, it's great. John Cleese, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I was thinking this- Angela Lansbury, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> Murder, she wrote, indeed. Yes. <laughs> uh, funny enough, too, the triple one, I cannot for the life of me remember why. I don't even know if there was a reason why, but it was featured on a morning show in the UK in like really? 2017. Oh. Like, why? You know, where do they get this in the first place? Like, you know, so many reasons, but people went nuts for it and would not stop contacting us. Huh. Lo and behold, it was five, four years too late. You know, we didn't sure. really have any more. But you've seen a lot of movement on the secondary for it. People going nuts for it. And I don't even know if you can find it anymore nowadays. Okay. We've scrolled some away, thankfully, for things like this, you know. Uh-huh. But one of those things where even back in the day, I mean, now we look at Boss Hog like, oh, my God, like, got to yeah. get it, whatever. Back in the day, though, there wasn't any idea of Boss Hog is going to be this huge thing. People sure. are going to want this. So, you see, I mean, my dad had a bottle of Triple One that we just drank, like, for whatever reason, you know? And just, like, nowadays, you'd covet that and, like, you know, maybe maybe open it on a special occasion when your son turns 21 or something like that. But, yeah. We look at these things a bit differently, yeah. you know? In hindsight, we didn't quite know things would be what they are. Well, you certainly hit the flavor note for me. I definitely get the dill on it. It's definitely more savory than where we just came from with Samurai Scientist. And it's a really nice pivot point from the sweetness of the plums that yeah. came through now back into a more traditional rye precise uh, at, a, at a proof that gives you a bit of that spice and let's taste two next it'll be a nice ramp up from that but it is that classic rye flavor profile with a bit more to offer the oak extracts in the back of the palate are nice it's not aggressive on the palate in terms of heat in terms of ethanol in terms of sharpness and it does have that classic rye flavor profile with enough barrel extracts on the nose, on the palate, and on the finish that you get a well-rounded whiskey. Cool. Around this age point, too, we might be worried about pulling too much from the cask, so mm-hmm. finding whiskeys like this gets a little bit tougher. Hmm. So okay. Let's try two here as well. I think you're going to like this even more, actually. Cool. It's a little more savory, a little more beefy. It's got a bit more palate structure, palate weight to it. Okay. A couple more proof points on there as well. Okay. Sweet. Um, pretty similar base whiskey, too, in terms of age, terms of profile. We mentioned earlier treating whiskey from different distilleries differently, but you also have to treat different batches from the same distillery quite differently. Hmm. So while we're sipping on the the triple one on our way to the Boss Hog 2, we're talking about what you're doing with your blending, the flavor profiles, what casts are doing. 
you know, clearly you're situated here at the distillery in Vermont. You do a bit of traveling on top of that. What does the day-to-day look like for Pete around here? What are some of the many hats that you wear of a, of a day? And who specifically are you leaning on around the distillery to, to get things done on a day-to-day basis? That answer has changed drastically over the years. The answer was myself for quite a while. <laughs> Luckily, over the years, we've garnered quite a few very talented people coming in, which has been fantastic, mm-hmm. not just for me, but for the company as a whole. In the distillery itself, I've got Megan Ireland. She's our quality assurance supervisor. That's really just one of the hats she wears. She does basically everything and then some. She's made my life so much better. in simple things like warehouse oversight. As you mentioned, mm-hmm. I'll be on the road, you know, depending, two weeks out of the month, something like that. Having somebody here who I can trust fully is pretty huge. She's yeah. coming from a chemical engineering background. She's worked for a distillery before, a cidery as well. She's got the passion, the drive. She's looking for you know the same things I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. And we've also, over the past couple of years, brought in some new distillers as well. Chris Ditchard from uh, Long Trail Brewing, actually. It's bringing a great brewing background, great sort of yeast cultivation, biology background. It's been great to have somebody like him in there. Emily Harrison, who's our distillery manager, came in about mm-hmm. a year ago, coming to us from Wild Turkey and then Barton 1792. Hmm. So we're really kind yeah, okay. of reaching a nice level of bringing people in from not just Vermont, not just the Northeast, but around the country with different backgrounds. Emily is also a chemical engineer, I should mention. Different backgrounds, bringing different experiences into the fold, coming from bourbon, coming from cider, coming from, I mean, even our maintenance manager came from the sort of higher end stage hand scene, which has been incredibly valuable here hmm. because being a stage hand means you have to basically know how to do everything in the world. And that's wow. exactly. Yeah. Yep. So little things like that. I mean, installing uh-huh. our second still would have been a nightmare without Jeremy. Things like that are, yeah. you know, we take them for granted that you've got the person all behind the scenes, you know, just doing it, but they're the yeah. ones who make it happen when it comes down to it. Huh. Day for me, I mean, the most cliche answer in the world is quite true, varies quite a bit. Today, I literally spent all day long gathering samples, proofing them down, packaging them up nicely, and getting them ready to be sent out to an event I'm doing. Ah, little, okay. Much like what we did earlier, tasting through different finishes, blending mm. them together, making a unique whiskey just kind of for fun there. It's a nice day for me. It was a little different. <laughs> I mean, very busy, but, you know, I like to just do busy work, get my hands dirty. I miss, honestly, this is going to sound crazy, I miss working outside in the cold, hmm. getting wet in the Vermont sort of, you know, terrible weather because you don't notice it as much. Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> little things like that. So when I'm sticking my hand into a vat of whiskey and freezing it off, trying to get a sample, it feels good. Uh, you know, other days I'll, I'll literally sit in front of a computer and work on spreadsheets all day, making sure our inventory's going to work for the next five, ten years, you know, making sure that the quality's there, then the quantity's there, mm. then the quality quantity mix is there. And then, you know, saying we maybe have a little room to grow here and there, things like that. I might be doing interviews all day long. I might just have an easy day where I'm kind of hanging with the distillers, seeing what they're doing, mm. trying to improve their processes as well. I'll be on the road pretty often as well. Might be doing just a trade show somewhere, you know, getting to know the consumer base, might be putting on a seminar, as I mentioned, course pairing dinner, something like that. You know, it depends quite a bit. I'll bop around the country. I've been going a little more international lately, too. Mm-hmm. I really try to stay on the farm as much as possible, though. I'm right about 15 minutes in town in Middlebury here, so you know it's nice and easy for me to bop over here, even if it's a Sunday. I just got to come in and check on something. You know, we've got a group coming in, something like that. Just bop on over. I do enjoy quite a bit hanging with people like you who are coming to the mm-hmm. farm for various reasons. 
Thank Probably you. one of the better parts of my job, I'd say. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, every day is going to be different. Yeah. You know, some days I won't even think about tasting whiskey. Other days I will literally be tasting whiskey for a month straight, nonstop. You know, thousands of samples, depending on what's going on. Uh, I might be doing a hundred barrel deal with some group over two days, and we're tasting a hundred different single barrel samples. You know, I might literally have the worst palate in the world one week because I've got a cold or something <laughs> like that or whatever it is. And, you know, you just have to be smart. You have to realize you've got a very sort of various amounts of things as you mentioned you focus on one thing other things might fall to the wayside you got to find that balance yeah. and make sure all the bases are getting covered at the end of the day sure 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 i, I was uh on the drive up to picking jason up from the airport i was trying to uh trying to make a comparison of whistle pig to perhaps another distillery that i know and love and i was thinking that there were, there were some similarities this may be a stretch, maybe not. <laughs> Some similarities between you and the folks at Isle of Arran. Okay. So the Isle of Arran distillery started in 95, and about eight, ten years into them starting, the original founder and general manager had left, a new guy came on, and then they brought in a new distiller who used to work at Bowmore. That's James McTaggart. Gotcha. Um, and I think about Whistlepig, and I think one of your original founders is now moved on. Dave yes. Pickerel sadly passed. Um, you've got a new uh, distillery manager in, in Emily from, from Wild Turkey. So with people moving on, people passing, new distillery managers coming in, has that changed Whistlepig in, in any way? I would say if it has, it's only been positive. Okay. Has it changed us from what our brand identity is? Not even a little bit. Mm. In fact, it's only really kind of helped us fully realize that even more, what that brand identity is, and bring that out into the fold. Okay. Having people like Megan here means that casts that need to get dumped are getting dumped on time yeah. because there's more people with more expertise focusing on things that maybe maybe wouldn't have gone to the wayside, but definitely will not now that we have yeah. more people looking at it. Yeah. It's, you know, we, we say we're bringing these people from these various places, but that doesn't mean they're coming to change everything. It's kind of, for me, mimics when a craft distillery gets bought up by somebody and everybody fears, oh my God, everything's going to change. I say, you wouldn't buy somebody up and change everything. You're no. buying them up for a reason. It's <laughs> for, because they're doing exactly. quite well. Yeah, exactly. If you change things, that's counterintuitive. Same deal where we're not necessarily bringing them in to have them force their brand on us. Mm. We're having them supplant our brand with their knowledge, with their experience, mm -hmm. really kind of build up the brand as well with more expertise, more experience in yeah. general. You know, we can now speak to various sides of this industry more than just, you know, myself coming from a homebrewing background, from a whiskey mm -hmm. background. We now have mm -hmm. various people from various parts of the country here. And it's, it's kind of get, I mean, the first thing we do obviously is train people, but it's an idea of let's talk about this portfolio. Let's talk about what these whiskeys are, what yeah. they've meant to us. There's a lot of history, even though we've only been around for about a decade, mm. to give an idea of what we've been through, how our companies sort of evolved and really kind of indoctrinate you in that sense. Yeah. That's step one when it comes down to it. So if anything, we're really bringing them into the fold of the brand, changing them, if that makes sense. <laughs> uh, and then the changes that they'll make, I mean... <laughs> So with little simple things like standardizing finishing lengths, you know, yeah. one, one of the first things I did was I standardized the finishing length for the 12 year, simple little things like that. Yeah. It's new, it's a change, but it's only, it's only good, you know, um, doing sort of 
quality things like on our on our bottle itself. Like, okay, we noticed that some of our flanges are sort of popping out a little bit too much and tapering too much and the closure isn't perfect. Well now, Megan Ireland with her with her smart brain <laughs> can go and, and basically get to the bottom of this and focus on this. And it's a change, but it's a change for the better. You know, wow. it's, yeah. it's expertise. It's, it's we're more nimble now. You know, we can adapt a little bit better and we've grown, we've expanded, but we're still quite small. You know, we, we have more bottlers than anything else. We have probably five warehouse guys. We've got three distillery shifts and a guy on the weekend with only four distillers, you know, mm. We're still very small. I mean, we might have more bottlers than anything else, to be honest. And we've only got about eight to ten bottlers at any time. So okay. we've grown. We've doubled in size, but our size was quite small to begin. So, okay. you know, once we get to a bit larger, once we, if we can even get there, I mean, we're we're kind of on a sort of steady pace, if you will. Mm-hmm. We will never put too much whiskey in a bottle because we want to have arrows in the quiver. You know, if we want to shoot at a target later on down the road and we don't have the arrow in there, then we're kind of fucked. Mm. We didn't shoot too early, you know, when we could have, but maybe we shouldn't have, which is the way we run, then we're in a much safer spot. Then that's almost how things like Boss uh, okay. come to play. It's we've got extra inventory. It's garnering flavor in a way we didn't expect, or we held it back for a certain reason, and maybe it's four barrels of something and mm. it's a, you know, special release for our an account that's been good to us for over the years, you know. Hey, we've got these four barrels of seventeen year old whatever it is. What do yeah. you say? It, your inventory always surprised me, you know, f- from the standpoint of going to a shop and seeing what's on the shelf, you consistently have really good age-stated whiskeys, whereas other producers that are bottling rye do not. I think that really makes you stand out. Do you think that, that do you think that's something that helps you to, to stand out, those older? I would say so. Yeah. I, I don't think it hurts us, I'll say. Yeah. And age statements are something that a consumer can look at and feel good about for a good reason. I mean, it's a guarantee of quality to a degree. However, age is oftentimes just a number. Again, Mm -hmm. to be cliche, Mm -hmm. all of our whiskeys that are age stated, it's more of a minimum entry level requirement. All of our whiskeys are a blend of different barrels. Every whiskey that you drink is going to be a blend of several barrels. And that's a good thing. It's a flavor profile. The 10 years, a flavor profile more than an age statement Right now, it's a mixture of barrels 10 to 17 years old. The 15-year-old, same deal. It's a flavor profile, more so than an age statement. It has to be 15 to get in there, but it's 15 to 18 right now. Okay. It varies quite a bit. Depending, we have to meet this flavor profile. I mentioned earlier, it's almost like I'm making a cocktail, but instead of spirits and liqueurs and bitters, yeah. I'm grabbing different batches of whiskey with different flavor profiles to make the 10-year, to make the 15-year, to make Boss Hog, whatever it's going to be. So it's, you know, we're, we're basically... To achieve consistency, we're taking various barrels, various ages. <laughs> Minimum is going to be mm. that that sort of statement on the bottle. But again, our 12 years oftentimes well over age. That's trending over 14 right now. It's a wow. matter of what fits that flavor profile at any given time. Having it, I mean, why don't we increase it to 14 years old then, you say, Pete? Well, we want to be flexible enough. 14-year-old whiskey is not always the best choice for the 12-year. Mm-hmm. In fact, it might be way too much, way too over-oaked, effectively speaking. Okay. But, yeah. Okay. Very interesting. So as we start to pour the Boss Hog 2 here, you've mentioned a word that is dear to us uh, several times here. And, and the whole Sorry reason... And broomsticks. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole reason that we're at Whistlepig Farm, collaboration. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Something Josh and I 
have been committed to since 2011. Um, we know why we do it. And listening to you today and listening to you in this interview, you're bringing people here, or you're going out, or you're sending things to bartenders. You're collaborating a lot. Why? And I know the answer for us. What's the answer for you? Why not, I guess? Because <laughs> yeah. it makes everything better, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'd say, yeah, simply put, it definitely makes everything better. I mean... Specifically speaking, the whiskey that we're putting in a bottle is going to be a lot better if our consumer base has told us this is what we want. And in that sort of crowdsourcing aspect, in that tapping into your industry connections, into your friends across the country, across the globe, so you get those ideas, you know. Mm. I, yeah, I don't really have a good non cheesy answer for you, other than <laughs> why not, you know? Um, I don't know. We, I mean, we innovate not just for the sake of, we collaborate not just for the sake of. Oftentimes a collaboration can be bad. I mean, if you if one party doesn't have the right sort of mentality, if they come into it looking for something different, if they want to swindle somebody over, it's not always the best thing. Yeah. You find the right partners and you vet them properly and you don't just jump into something. And that's how you get a proper collaboration going. And well, and it's that level of trust that appeals to us. And it's going out and it's eyeballing people and sure. it's spending time with people and it's seeing what's important to those people. Precisely. And spending time at the distillery today and seeing what's important to you and seeing where we align with that. And then for you, seeing what we, you know, what's important to us and how do you align with that? You know, I, I love that back and forth. And it's really the love of the whiskey industry that that has that level of collaboration Absolutely. where we are all in this together. We're not competing with one another. We're, we're doing our best to represent this category to numerous people in numerous countries uh, and numerous states within this country. So I feel like we're on this fight together and we yeah. can only help each other. Absolutely. Yeah, It's it doesn't do me any good to talk smack about any other brand exactly. because at the end of the day we're all selling whiskey we're all selling mm -hmm. spirits it's an uphill battle for all of us and we yeah. want the consumer to know more to be more educated and to have at the end of the day it's personal relationships it's exactly you know, the reason yeah. that we get on yeah. so well is because we you know we do align we connect on things exactly. we have the right idea of what whiskey can should be will mm -hmm. be yep some people don't and we don't necessarily want to collaborate with them you don't necessarily yep. know that right away but that being said, you, again, this is an industry built so much on relationships. Yes. For us, we don't sell Whistlepig. The bartender sells Whistlepig. The retail yes. store owner sells Whistlepig because they want to. It's word yeah. of mouth. It's yeah. for you guys as well. It's a buddy telling a buddy's buddy, hey, you got to try this. Oh, you like this? You got to try this. And mm. at the end of the day, we're both pretty fortunate that the juice speaks for itself. You know, yep. people drink our products because the whiskey, because the spirit is fantastic. Period. Yeah, there are other reasons as well. But at the end of the day, that's what we should hang our hat on. Mm -hmm. The flavor itself. You know, that's what people are drawn to whiskey in the first place. That's what drew me to whiskey was my first whiskeys I ever owned. Could not have been more different. It was four hours of small batch and Lagavulin 16 year simultaneously. All right. Nice. Yeah. Very strange. Also, Knob Creek Maple for some reason. Don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, and that was our, your prize. The maple bottle. makes yeah. sense. Yeah, right. Exactly. But they were just, they made their way into my hands wow. within a week of each other. And I remember the first time I ever even smelled that Lagavulin, I was like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> yeah. is this? It's a Sharpie. What the fuck? And by the end of the bottle, I couldn't get enough of it. Uh -huh. It's just that yeah. the flavor is what did it for me. Four Roses, putting that in the glass at first with some ice, then drinking it neat and ping. Oh my God, there's vanilla in there. There's mm. the flavor of vanilla yeah. in there, quite mm -hmm. literally. And so much more. It's, you kind of go down that rabbit hole and... 
when the, I mean, granted, people get into whiskey for other reasons. Maybe they love the stories, the marketing, whatever it's going to be. But far and away, it's the the spirit, the liquid that speaks for itself in our yeah. industry and should. And that's why people like Whistleblick, people like Single Cast Nation are received so well. And that's why we're still around is mm-hmm. at the end of the day, juice has to speak for itself. You know, we can tell you why you should want it, but mm. we shouldn't have to. Mm-hmm. So with that said, one thing we haven't talked about is your own distillate, your own spirit. Uh. And so obviously MGP and Alberta Rye have specific flavor profiles. You definitely change that up, maturing it a bit closer to where you're located and then with the various finishes. But what are you going after with your farm stock? Well, obviously a farm stock is a marriage of your stuff and and others, but your own distillate, what, what are you targeting there from a flavor standpoint? So... There's a lot of answers to that. There's some wrong answers, too. The wrong answers are we're trying to mimic these distilleries that we've been sourcing from. Yeah. It's just foolish to try to do that in any sort of way unless you have the same exact climate, location, production equipment, you know, period. If you don't have the same fermentation capacity still itself, if you're not distilling the same way, then you're not going to make the same product. It's it's. You can get close, but you should just try to make your own version that's truer Mm. to your sort of where you're coming from. For us, it's that idea of terroir. We call it triple terroir, but we just, for me, it's more than just three things. You know, we're using local wood. We're using our well water. You know, we're using our grain from our farm. We're cultivating Mm. our yeast. You know, our climate itself is quite a bit different than any other sort of, not any other, but most whiskey-making climates, I'd say. Mm. Even Calgary, Alberta is a little bit more like the South than it is Vermont, which people think, Mm -hmm. they think it's freezing cold. It's the worst, you know? Yeah, Yeah, but it's actually Calgary. I went up there for the Calgary Stampede Uh to a honky tonk with about a thousand saddles hanging from the ceiling. That should give you an idea of what it's like up there. (laughs) Love it. It's fantastic. But we are definitely trying to make Whistlepig Vermont rye, effectively speaking. That's going to mean a lot of things. We are looking to not make just one type of whiskey per se, Mm -hmm. I mentioned arrows in the quiver. We're trying to stick as many in there as possible. We do that with different mash bills, different distillation styles of the same mash bill. So we might make a cleaner, lighter 100% rye and a heavier, you know, maybe tailsier 100% rye that might want longer time in the barrel, okay. make a very different style overall. Switching up the mash bill as well can give you a lot of variability there. Okay. However, one thing that we do, maybe not better per se, but we do very well, especially compared to some other places is just our wood overall wood management our cask types mm. using proper wood we don't just use one kind of barrel we have various toast and char profiles for a couple different almost styles of barrel by having a varied inventory of casks we can then blend on the back end and give you different products so we go into a split of you know our special toast profile our classic char three with toasted heads our char four our char this and that you know various okay. things and Additionally, to go one step further, we're not making just rye. The other spirits that we make have their own specific barrel that they go into. You know, a bourbon might want a special toast profile that a rye might not want, depending on what we're trying to make here. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah. you can achieve a lot of complexity of flavor and leave things open-ended to answer mm. that question while also answering that question with products like farm stock. So the flavor profile of our distillate and farm stock and the idea of farm stock on the whole was how do we put our whiskey in a bottle at a low age, blend it together with other older whiskeys to give you an appreciable flavor profile, mm. but stay true to the Whistlepig distillate. The first version had our one-year-old whiskey at 20%. Second version had our two-year-old whiskey at 32 
This year, we had three-year-old at 52%. Okay. When you taste them side by side, you should, and oftentimes people will, notice that flavor compounding, increasing, that whistle pig flavor. Granted, it's blended with other whiskeys, so we take that with a grain of salt, but yeah. we're looking at a very nice 100% rye on the floral, grassy side. Good spice to it, but not overwhelming sort of pepper spice. Really nice baking spices on the sort of back palate, side mm. palate. Nice citrus on the nose as well. We also get a lot of sort of early extracts from that Vermont oak. So you get a lot of vanilla early on. You get a lot of sort of caramel and some good oak spice structure too. With the toast profile as well, we're pulling some different sort of wood sugars, some different wood aromatics as well that you might not get at all from a classic char three, char four barrel, Mm. which you've been able to see is particularly on this year's farm stock. It's got a really great nose to it. A lot of sort of wood sugars, a lot of vanilla going on there. Good amount of rye spice too. That's a classic sort of example of our Vermont oak coming in with those okay. heavier extracts, if you will. The idea of whistle pig rye, what does it taste like? What does it mean? I think we'll mimic something like our core lineup where the 10 is different than the 12 is different than the 15. It's not going to mean one thing. There's going to be any number of products coming from this farm that are going to taste different from one another. They might be three ryes with four bourbons and 20 single malts. Who knows what it is? But regardless, we're going to see variety. We want to see variety. We want to taste different products, and we want to see different styles of rye. And we want to keep on bringing different styles of rye to you, much like we already are with our current lineup, with our current core skews there. So So the goal isn't to have your own distillate become the only product coming from Whistlepig. That is correct. It is It'll not. still be this DNA of the MGP, the Alberta. Yeah, precisely. Plus your own and, and you know, multiple variations therein. I think that's the best way to look at it right now. We'll define that better as we go on, and we have been, and based off what yeah. people want to see as well. The way I like to say it is people wouldn't be very happy if the tenure just went away. Sure. sure. And uh, I, neither would I. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are there particular challenges to growing your own rye? Um, yes. I mean, I would say in general, it's more so challenges to being a farmer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, we, we use some local guys. So actually right up the road, Mike Davis was our farmer for quite a while. His son, Colin Davis runs Shaxbury cider. Um, we've done some collaborations with them as well, but Mike Davis was our guy for quite a while. And the challenges are, you know, Vermont itself has a pretty varied climate. You might get a really crappy yield one year from a couple fields. You know, we might try to grow corn that we shouldn't be growing. Corn that's got way too long of a growing season. We, One year we harvested corn in the snow. And I won't say anything else, actually. It was bad. <laughs> we didn't use that corn. <laughs> when you use corn that's supposed to grow in, like, Tennessee in Vermont and you yeah, plant it late, yeah, it's not going to work. Yeah. Corn without any sugar. Yeah. <laughs> Uh huh. Wow. So, oh, yeah. so, you're, so the challenges of being a farmer. Yeah. You know, it precisely because we started as whiskey producers mm-hmm. who happen to grow grain here. Mm-hmm. That didn't mean that we were good at growing grain. We've learned quite a bit as time goes on. We've yeah. gotten even just better people to come in and kind of help us out. You know, somebody who's harvesting with a better combine that works better for rye. You know, simple yeah. things like that. Who has more of a mind to you know maybe dry this grain down a little bit more before mm-hmm. we store it for X Y Z reason. I'd say farming itself has been not a huge challenge, but more so than rye itself. It's more having that aspect of the business. People, you know, you take it for granted that we grow all of our own grain, but it's a beast. I mean, we saw the silos earlier. We saw the mill, everything like that. Something as simple as storing that grain throughout the winter and making sure it doesn't, you know, get real cold and then real hot and effectively Mm. 
sort of condensate and start growing, start sprouting. You know, we don't necessarily Uh, want malted rye. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Sprouted rye coming from Whistlepig. It's almost like a green malt, but unintentional. Exactly. (laughs) So it's interesting to me that, you know, and listening to you talk about having arrows in your quiver as far as casks go. TM that, by the way. Right. (laughs) Trademark that one. You also have that going on with your, your processes on the farm. You're... You're growing like a like a farmer would. You're growing grain. Yeah. Um, you're sourcing juice like an independent bottler would. Sure. You're distilling your own like a distiller would. It's like you got multiple fronts going on at the distillery, and it, it's interesting. Interesting to me as as an independent bottler. I feel like Joshua and I aren't doing enough. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely feel inadequate <laughs> hearing all the all the stuff that you do and just feeling smaller. And smaller. I, I, I can see why it takes a team of a hundred, right, yeah, to, to make Whistle Pig happen. Um, but it's it's really impressive, and and given that this is our first trip here, and I would like to go so far as to say not our last. <laughs> I would like to as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, nope, this is our last. The, the, the whistle uh, this interview is over. <laughs> Thunk. Yeah. Uh, needle scratch. <laughs> and uh, I, like, I feel like Whistlepig is doing so much more than I even knew what you were doing 24 hours ago when we drove along the road here. It's almost like we should do a better job of letting people know that we're doing I would this. agree with you on that front. <laughs> It's Perhaps, uh, yeah. yeah no I've 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 loved learning about it and seeing it happen. Um, pivoting back sure. to the Boss Hog Two here, that yes. again I've just been Firmly sipping on glasses now. Uh, yes. as, as we've been chatting yeah. away. You, again, you're you're spot on. It's got a little bit more. Again, I would say heft to it. Absolutely, weight might be a, a way to describe it. It almost feels like a grown up version of the the Triple One. And you hit the nail on the head. That's what we're effectively going for. And I'm glad that you were able to pick up on that transition where it's a, simply put, it's a better version of yeah. this triple one. Yeah. We're staying more true to this idea of, and it should be noted, we have no finish at this point in our life on the boss hog. This mm. is a pure single barrel oh. rye at cast strength. Mm. Oh, interesting. Okay. That's and what's funny is this wood. does, it knows is a lot sweeter than actually I remember a lot of vanilla character on there, but that spice character, that rye-centric sort of grain character on the palate is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Even a, a touch of smoke on the back end, too, which mm-hmm. I, I like quite a bit. So uh, this is, there is no finish to this whatsoever. Yep, no finish. This is an ADL whiskey here, right? So it's 100%, excuse me, rye. No finish. It's 13 years old, a little bit more than 13. Just aged in uh, char three all its life. So how mm. the hell is it like markedly different from... You know, I, I think back to your original 10-year-old, yeah. right? Totally, totally different product. And it's just an extra three years. So, it's not. Okay. We, we would like to think of it like that, but yeah. it's a little bit more complex than that. Okay. And it goes back to the idea that every batch is going to be different. Yeah. Granted, if you dump enough batches together, you might achieve some level of consistency, some level of mm. oneness, if you will. But that's not what Boss Hog is. Bossog is finding these unique barrels, these nuanced casks that are going to give us a unique profile that is, again, not just three more years of aging. Yeah, It's giving us something a little bit different, something unique, and it is a very much different product. Bossog itself is much like I would for tenure. We're picking barrels, but we're not blending those barrels together. Yeah. They should taste quite similar to one another. 
but they should also offer something unique. And mm. like I said, we if we had three different bottlings of Balsog too, we'd notice some flavor variation there. For the better, for the worse, we might like one better for whatever reason. But each cask is going to give you a unique profile. Each yeah. batch of casks will give you a unique profile. And oftentimes the Boss Hog uh, batches are going to be the more niche ones, the ones mm-hmm. that we maybe didn't have a use for sure. because we didn't want to just dump it into tenure. You know, it yeah. didn't maybe fit the bill or it was a little bit better than what we're looking for. So we hold off on it there. What do you find most challenging? You know, you've been here 2005, since 2015. 2015. So you've, you're here four years now. What are you finding, uh, if there are any challenges? <laughs> no challenges. I mean, it's easy every day. Look yeah, at him, man. Come on. I mean, for, right here we are, Jason and I, single cast nation. Like, on, on the front of it, we seem to be very successful, right? People know who we are. They're familiar Little with Little do bottlings. you know. I dread to think what's coming next. Little do you know. <laughs> but, but, you know, we were just talking earlier over, over breakfast you know, thinking about the the government shutdown earlier this year that put a four month hiccup into our overall production. We couldn't get new labels printed, oh, and sure. so on and so forth. So th- there are always challenges that may seem mundane to you or other people. But w- what are, what is what are challenges that you've had to overcome? That's a great question, right there. I mean, I can't help but jump on your example there of the yeah. government in general. <laughs> And you, you know, you speak to tariffs, which yeah. is never good, which definitely yeah. was a pain, still is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it goes deeper than that. It's simple things like TTB legislation. They'll yeah. change their mind as to how you should label something and not even let you know. Yeah. They'll change their mind as to what a certain class of spirit means. The definition changes. And again, they may let you know, they may not, mm-hmm. but it could be something as simple as your product was one thing one day and now suddenly it's something completely different the next day. It is, and it's it's really strange. We maybe give them a bit too much credit sometimes. Yeah. Think that there's a reason for everything. I think it's part of a symptom of the evolving market, you know, the evolving industry where, again, whiskey is so much different than it was five, ten years ago, really? 20 yeah. years ago especially. Yeah, very much. And how do we react and respond to that on the legislative side? Legislative side? Mm. In a more local sense, too, government has been sort of a hurdle for us here in Vermont where Vermont is well known for being very environmentally friendly, mm. which meant for us when we're building our distillery, when we're trying to warehouse casks, we have to go that much further with testing with basically satisfying these sort of act 250 laws as we call them, which if one state in the union really wants to protect the environment, it's definitely Vermont. You know, we would have had our distillery going within the classic year and a half, two years. It took us about five and a half or so to, Wow! and you know, it's not just time, it's money as well. These are not yeah. cheap things to do. Something as simple as warehousing. We really, really were trying for quite a while to build warehouses in Vermont. However, we're such a novel thing. There's no precedent for a distillery our size, which is hilarious because mm-hmm. we're pretty damn small in the grand scheme. <laughs> but, you know, the next yeah. biggest distillery in Vermont's about a third the size. So even storing all these barrels, what do we do? Yada, yada. We eventually had to actually build warehouses 30 minutes across the lake in New York because, wow. you know, we didn't have the time to wait. We didn't have the money to spend on these tests, on these sort of things. We have to store our whiskey, you know, and unfortunately we had to go to New York Great, great sort of area, Mariah, Minesville area. Mm-hmm. Fantastic people. We've hired quite a great number of people over there with great talent. Aaron Wilson, the manager over there. Our blending team over there. Our warehousing team's fantastic. But, you know, we would have loved to do it over here and hire yeah. people over here. But it's just the nature of the beast. You know, you can't always get what you want. And 
at least we've got a lot of happy campers over in New York right now. You know, the process <laughs> is going very smoothly, so <laughs> there are some silver linings. It ends well, I suppose. But yeah, I guess I don't usually complain about the government that much. But <laughs> if I had to, this would be the way I would. Well, I'm glad I could offer you a platform. Exactly. Yeah. You thank yourself. you for being <laughs> candid. Uh, greatly appreciated. <laughs> We're going to come back to the rest of our conversation with Pete, but we thought it would be a good idea to pause it here and give a bit of a an intro into this final 8, 10, 12, however many minutes it is. I don't quite remember, but it is surely the shorter uh, part of the conversation. It is, and, and I would even use this moment just to take a breath. Because I know that in listening back to the the raw audio with you yesterday, as we drove from Elgin back down to Glasgow, mm. it it's intense. There's so much information coming. Yeah, you know, just like the whiskey, layer after layer after mm. layer. Mm-hmm. That just taking a little breath. Zemmerdun. Is that what you mean? <laughs> Understanding the words coming out of your mouth today. <laughs> Seldon? I said Simmerdoon. 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 I'm trying to simmer up right now. (laughs) You do need to simmer up. You're a sleepy boy. (laughs) Um, So what what will we return to cover in this very final short segment? We're two lucky guys, Jason. 100%. 100%. We're we're incredibly lucky. Slippers aside. I am a a lucky, lucky fella. Yeah. Something happened that we never thought would happen. We're not back to you rubbing my nipples again, are we? <laughs> no, we knew that would happen. Okay, one yeah, of us yeah, did. Yeah. <laughs> what a, you should have known too. I should have known too, I mean. <laughs> simmer up, simmer up. Simmer up, simmer up. Every now and again, the tables turn a bit. And by that, I mean, we find ourselves constantly reaching out to distilleries. Hey, can we buy whiskey from you? Reaching out to brands. Hey, can we interview you? Uh, reaching out to marketing agencies. Hey, we have a festival. We're hoping that your brands could could show up. Can we be in touch with your brand people? Okay. Right? Always reaching out. But occasionally, people reach out to us. Right? Whiskey Jubilee year two. The folks from Heaven Hill reach out to us. They say, we're really interested in being a bigger part of your festival. Uh, how, how can we participate? And we say, can we do a bottling together? We'd love to have a festival bottling and say, that's actually a great idea. And, you know, Heaven Hill being a Jewish-owned company really helped us work on the stickiness of that release. Yeah. But providing wonderful juice to us. It was this wonderful collaborative experience 100 percent, right and, and that's and that's what we always try to create but usually it's us reaching out high west right dave perkins having conversations with us how can we work together more we said oh thank you for that question well last year we worked with heaven hill on a jubilee bottling let's do a blend together says dave perkins all right okay and th- these are these big brands, these well-known brands that are looking to us to collaborate with us. And we really enjoy that, and I'm going to use the term, spirit of collaboration. Absolutely. Right? 
So that's every once in a while over the years that's happened. Brands, distilleries reach out to us. Isle of Aaron, right? When we first started Single Cast Nation, they let us know we want to be your first bottling. Yeah, that was fantastic stuff. So fast forward eight and a half years, and we get a message from the folks at Whistlepig, and they say, we're really interested in what you guys do, and, and we're interested in collaborating with you. Maybe there's a colonel here. And so... Colonel Angus? Colonel Angus. That's my cat, everybody. You said colonel, not colonel, right? I said colonel. Colonel? I said colonel. Colonel. Colonel Angus? Colonel. Colonel. That's a weird word. Anyway, so getting this message from them, we say, okay, maybe there is a colonel here, and maybe we can figure out a way to collaborate on a special release. Where there's a will, there's a way. Right. And if they have interest, yeah. we will find a way <laughs> to make that work. And so we went to Whistlepig with the intention of collaborating on a special release. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the conversation, very similar to our time with Wild Turkey, we went from working with them on one special release to two special releases. So we're working with Whistlepig on two very special collaborative bottlings. And in this segment that you'll hear just now, we're discussing one of them, our, our first selection, if you will. The second one, which we will remain shtum about for now, um, is equally as interesting, but mm-hmm. this was the sample that we had in front of us, so we discussed the one bottling. Is there anything else you wanted to add to this, Jason? Nope. I'm, I'm ready to hear this conversation around this election. Before we do. Back it up. Beep, beep, beep. Thank you to Pete. Oh, of course. Thank you to Whistlepig. Absolutely. For thinking of us, for looking to collaborate with us. We, we understand this is uh, a unique and rare opportunity because you've never done this with anybody before. And the fact that we would be your first, uh, you honor us. So thank you. This, this isn't going to be the last thank you before we end. There is one thing I wanted to include in our podcast after our conversation with Pete. But I really, I, I had to put that out there. We feel honored that you'd want to work with us yeah oh always 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 and and as much as there's a whole team to name check mm. we're busy saying thank you to whistle pig writ large writ large right? yep. all the members of the team that we met that we've worked with that we've emailed with mm. it, it's really been a good time and a good conversation and uh, and a very good selection so with that said here's a little bit of the chat Uh, we have poured in our glasses this lovely 12-year-old whistle pig finished in Tokai cast. He's holding up a plastic bottle, by the way, <laughs> pretending like it's a super highbrow, like premium whiskey or something like that. Yeah. No, it's a plastic bottle with my chicken scratch on it. Is there However, scratch? the oh, juice is, yeah, is yeah, getting the light. You can oh, see yeah, the Tokai. Yeah. That's how you know it's good whiskey, when it's in a really <laughs> shitty looking bottle with terrible Absolutely. handwriting on it. Well, the color is absolutely phenomenal it's not that we're color guys but the color is no, phenomenal yeah, yeah, yeah. i think that just makes us appreciate color even more you know is those few times when it can be done well well i mean that red bordeaux finish is a great example at cast strength great color i mean we tasted it yeah. we don't necessarily want to drink it per yeah. se but color on that is fantastic yes 
So, so in the spirit of collaboration, this is what we're drinking is, is one of a couple things that we're collaborating oh, yeah. on. A little single cast nation whistle pig or whistle pig single cast nation, however you want to yeah. want to look at it. Hyphen or no hyphen. <laughs> <laughs> so Tokai casks in Hungarian oak. Precisely. You did a, you did an excellent job explaining the Mr. Miyagi um, Samurai umi, Umimoto. <laughs> <laughs> What was it called? Wax on, wax off. <laughs> Samurai yeah, scientist. Samurai scientist. Yeah. Yeah. The umishu. No, well, I was the umishu. Yes. 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 Sorry, I couldn't. I just I couldn't think of it, so I decided to get really racist there for a second. <laughs> it worked. Um, Mission accomplished. <laughs> yes, it worked. <laughs> I apologize to all of our Asian listeners. I did not mean to offend you. I'll tell a Jewish joke later, and then we'll be even Steven. So <laughs> that's how it works. We won't. <laughs> um, talk to us about Tokai and and how. What it does to your whiskeys, and is this sort of a one-off that you did? Have you done Tokai finishes before? So this is part of a super special program that we never talk about. As we mentioned earlier, apparently we do a pretty bad job of this. So I'd like <laughs> to take this opportunity to talk about it a little bit. As an extension of our 12-year program, we yeah. do a kind of single finish behind the scenes where we'll take basically any cask that mm. makes sense, Tokai being one of them. However, it's included anything from a white burgundy Chardonnay to different various wood types. Uh, anything from a Brazilian teakwood that Amberana finished we tasted earlier to Caucasian oak being Russian oak. Ah, to so that's the Brazilian teakwood. Precisely. I was just using the whole Latin name, Aber... Yeah, it's because you're a Aber smart Kedabra. guy with glasses. Crombie and Finch. <laughs> Take my glasses and Finch. Aber- <laughs> was it Abracadabra? No, I think it was Hilfiger, actually. Yeah, oh, Hilfiger, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, we'll take the same exact base juice as goes into the 12 year old world, finish it in something different. And given the cask, it's going to be a completely different flavor profile. Each of these finishes is going to sit for a different length of time. That might be as short as a week. That might be as long as four to five months. It's not going to be typically too much longer than that, because as we yeah. mentioned, we're not looking to completely transform this whiskey. All we want to do is add a top note, add some extra nuance, deepen that complexity, create a yeah. new style, but stay true to the rye whiskey that it was before exactly. we that cask. Well, yeah. So with this Tokai itself, we're looking at, as you mentioned, a Hungarian dessert wine, fortified dessert wine. Very Good. Not overly sweet per se, but sort of middle of the road in terms of sweetness in dessert wines. What makes Tokai extra unique is the use of Hungarian oak. Mm. Hungarian oak to put it incredibly simply, is almost a midpoint between American and French oak. We've got a bit more spice character, a bit of that vanilla character as well, some nice mouthfeel, some nice lactones. Okay. We're tasting that absolutely in this yeah, whiskey now, that yeah. creamy mouthfeel that it has going on. What makes this unique too is, so the use of Hungarian oak, but we're also finishing this 12-year-old rye whiskey in it. It's a bit fruitier to begin with. It's mm. not overly sweet. It's got some really nice mellow baking spices to it. Really complex. It's got some great wood extracts by this point. Pretty mellow. As I mentioned, too, this is trending a bit higher in age, too, so it's had a bit more time to mellow out, to put it simply. With this cask extracts, we get... I mean, I'd love to hear your guys' take on it, but in general, we're getting a lot of good sweet notes on this. Mm. On the nose itself, not just from that Tokai period, but from the Hungarian oak as well. Mm -hmm. We're getting oak extracts, not just wine extracts. Well, you were talking earlier about the Tokai is almost like a French oak, but but subtly different. In what ways is the 
is the Türkei different from the French oak, even though it is bringing a certain spiciness? Right. So the Hungarian oak itself is going to, again, I mentioned just to really bastardize it, look at it simply. It's kind of, in terms of flavor extracts, a midway point between French and American oak. American oak we're looking at as generally going to be a bit more vanilla forward, a bit more caramel forward. And it depends on if we're talking toasting or charring here, but we'll just keep it simple and just say general barrel making. We're also looking at some nice sort of creamy notes too, some structure, some mouthfeel. A little bit less oak spice, but if we treat it a bit heavier with heat, we can get some mocha, some mm. smoky flavors coming out as well, some chocolate. On the other end of the spectrum, uh, French oak itself, typically tighter grain French oak, is going to give you a lot more spice character in general. And when you apply a medium to medium long toast to that, you're going to get a lot of great roasty flavors, coffee, you know, that mocha side of things as well, but tamped yeah. up a little bit. And you're going to get even more palate sort of structure, palate weight. Back end, you might get a lot of spice as well. So that oak spice character comes a lot more strongly from French oak than it does from American oak. With the Hungarian oak, we're going to notice some good sort of vanillins on the nose. Some mm. Not too much caramel because this is a toasted barrel, not a charred barrel. We're not really converting too many of those uh, wood sugars. However, we are going to get a lot of these nice sort of creamy notes on the tongue itself. Yeah. A lot of sort of, again, a lot of palate weight there. It's a whiskey you want to let sit on your tongue. Yeah. This is 110.9 proof as well. Does not drink like it at all. I mean, I could probably fool you into thinking this is 90 if I really wanted to, but then yeah. I'd feel kind of bad, so... People have done that to me. It doesn't feel good. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the texture is absolutely phenomenal. Oh, yeah. And one of the things that my palate is is really focusing on is, is sort of jamming. There's a fruitiness mm. that's almost jammy. jammy. It's very spot jammy. on. It's absolutely. really jammy. And, and jokingly, I, I forget what, what the conversation even was, but jokingly, we were mentor, mentioning persimmons. Yeah, completely <laughs> different conversation, but I'm tasting that like persimmon has that natural jammy kind of quality when it's when it's nice and ripe. Um, and, and I'm you know I'm thinking back to what Jason was saying before. You know we're tasting all of these finishes, and 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 then we get to the tokai, and and he says, I. I can't believe that this whiskey is this good. I'm not, I, I don't. I don't want to believe that this whiskey. Nay, is that sir. Good. And uh, so here we are revisiting it after five-ish hours. Is it? <laughs> What's the hot take? Here? Are, are you about hundred samples? No, it's still absolutely cracking. And it's funny for me, and, and why I've been listening to Pete so closely, is if you take rye and you put it into French oak. That sounds like spice on spice. Mm. If you then take that same rye and put it into Takai with some of that spice in there, it is complimentary, and I'm surprised by that. And this is why I love the use of jammy going on yeah, here. That's a yeah. great descriptor, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, that back end, you get that jam, you get that. Yeah. It's not aggressive spice. It's no. very present, but it, it's a nice yeah. tingle. It's a nice yeah. extra sort of supplantion there. And the jamminess, I mean, you say jammy, and I think absolutely jam, like blackberry yeah. Yeah. Oh, jam. Yeah, oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, Thicky yeah. sort of, you know, yeah. stewed fruits and all that sort of good stuff. These darker, richer, fruity flavors mm. coming on there. And these are present in that base whiskey that we tasted earlier, but they're only amplified, amplified. by that finishing oh, okay. cask there. Yeah, this is going to do incredibly well with the nation. Oh, man, I'm, I'm just yeah. so happy with how this turned out. And I'm glad yeah. that you guys yeah. agree with me, you know, yeah. and that this is something that you're kind of Very jumping much. on here. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for selling it to us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for buying it from me. Hey, collaboration. <laughs> collaboration. Yeah, precisely. Hey. Full circle. Uh, 
So, so we'll get you out of here on this. We've we've spent a lot of time with you. And thank you ever so much for oh, all of pleasure. your time today. I really um, appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a yeah. blast. What a trip! Uh, but just to get you out of here on this, very simple question: What are you most excited about with the distillery, with the farm, with Whistle Pig, with your job right now and going into the immediate future? Honestly, I'm just excited about Boss Hog Six right now. It just came out a couple weeks ago, and for me, it's a little different because this has been on my radar, obviously, for quite a bit longer. Mm. But again, now that it's out there, now that people are receiving it well, they're tasting it, finally getting to share it with people. You know, I'm always bringing something special with me no matter where I am and a little plastic flask to taste you on, but getting sort of the idea, getting the reception, if you will, you know, basically, I think pretty highly of this whiskey, and I want to see if everybody else does, you know? Yeah. I, it's it's a little atypical too. Typically, you finish making a product, you're kind of sick of it, you know. <laughs> yeah, right. Just, not even you're on kidding. to the next thing. Not yeah. even kidding. Yeah. But you know, it's it speaks to the product itself. Piggyback was actually a product like that too, where I could not yeah. stop drinking it after it came out for months. Fantastic. Yeah, it is. It really is. I kept and going back to that last night. It's, it's super versatile. Delicious. You know, yeah. it's got a lot of legs to stand on. Yeah. And you know, so just boss hog. I'm pretty hyped off it. Pretty high off it right now. And you know, can't wait to see what the world thinks of it. So. Yeah. Well, I will be drinking more of it after dinner. I can tell you that much. <laughs> I, I know you wanted to end there, but something just popped into my mind. Oh, boy. So your your official title is? Master Blender. Master Blender. Perfect. Throughout the course of the conversation, one of the things that struck me the most, you know, as a, as a Master Blender, I imagine you want to be able to put your stamp on on things. Maybe, maybe not. But what I found so interesting is that your 12-year-old product, you basically outsourced it to people, <laughs> right? And, and so I really appreciate this, this uh, perhaps a bit more of a humble approach saying, I, I know what I like, but, but what do you like? Is, is that a mark that you are looking to leave or are you looking to do more than that? I say, why not both? I mean, yeah. the collaborative aspect, the crowdsourcing, if you will, the using your consumers to tell you what they want to drink. I don't think that should ever go away. And I think yeah. more people should use that. Granted, it's not as easy as just, hey, tell me what you like. You know, you don't get the best data per se. Hmm. But yeah, it's, you know, you say humble and I say common sense. In a, you know, yeah, yeah okay. what I like is a certain thing. And I have an idea of what other people like. But I'm not right always at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. You know, I can make pretty damn good whiskey, but I'd like to get your take on it too. You know, good. we don't just trial things once. We don't just do one tasting sort of thing. We'll taste everybody in the office a million times and our people across the country. And I'll bring samples with me to the whiskey show in the UK, yeah. then to, you know, yeah. Seattle and to Texas, et cetera, and kind of get these takes and it might just be mental data points, but mm. you form an idea and it, helps you make whiskey for the people instead of just for yourself, mm -hmm. which is what you should be doing in the first place mm -hmm. unless you want to go out of business. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> and we don't. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, no, and yeah. you don't. And you guys have actually a very similar kind of mentality where the people tell you what they want and sure. you guys sure. very much cater to them. Yes. Maybe you don't think it's the best idea or you weren't going to do it basically your own volition, but you are absolutely looking to give the people what they want. You want to satisfy your customers. And specifically with you guys, you guys bring a lot of things to your consumers that 
they would never ever get to see, get to taste, even know exists. That's really. only the hope, exactly. And that's really the you know that's what it's all about. Much like while we're giving people different sides of rye, different flavor profiles, different age points. You guys are doing the same thing in a broader sense in whiskey on the whole, you know, yeah. giving, I mean, you guys spoke about your younger releases you've done and some of the more sort of niche, even scotch distilleries mm-hmm. that I've seen on the shelf. It's mm-hmm. wild, you know, to be able to taste that for the consumer is it's something that cannot be overlooked at the end of the day, uh, you know? Well, yeah. thank you. And I, yeah, and I you. greatly appreciate that you see and, and understand and, uh, and appreciate what we're doing as well. So, that's what leads to fantastic collaboration. I would say yeah, so. Indeed. Indeed. Cheers. Let's get out of this yeah. with a toast. I'll to say. Toast. Cheers, man. To the spirit Cheers. of collaboration. Thank you again to Pete and to the rest of the Whistlepig team. Pete, we appreciate all the time you spent with us. And uh, not just with the tour and showing us around, but but the conversation we had too, yeah. cracking conversation. And to to the rest of the Whistlepig team, you know, going to the to the Tiki Bar and I seeing, just thinking, right? <laughs> seeing their stills, seeing where they're 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 doing their cask finishes. Uh, it was it was a treat and a half. It was. Yeah. yeah really looking forward to getting back. Yeah. Uh, we need to get out of here, Jason. Um, there's there's always news to report, but I suggest we pass on that this time around. Uh, well, I will. I will briefly say because we love our listeners and because we like to keep them in the know. Oh, you and I have said this week we have got back to back to back meetings in London and Glasgow and Elgin and other parts. This is an insanely busy week. And I texted my wife last night and I my said, wife. this might be the most productive week we've ever spent in Scotland. Ever, ever. And we've had yep. very, very good weeks. This one is blowing it out the water. So you and I are super excited mm. with how this week has been going and we hope will continue to go. We're just, we're halfway into it. There's a there's a lot happening, so there there will be much 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 more news coming out of yeah. this. But know that here we are, really in the bare bones of it right now. Yeah, just just putting a whole bunch of things together. Yeah. So I, I just want to share that with the listeners. Well, thank you, Jason. And with the with the idea in mind of of us, you know, really being halfway into it. We got a comment on our on our blog in the Apple iTunes. Okay, right on our blog. And did I say blog? <laughs> yeah. I don't have. We don't have blogs. We don't <laughs> do the blog anymore. We kind of have a blog <laughs> on singlecastnation.com. <laughs> I guess so, but we don't. Just for releases. Yeah, just for, yeah, but we don't even use that. Do we? We do when we have releases. Oh, we do, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Glad we could have this conversation <laughs> on air. <laughs> Well, in the comments section of the Apple Podcasts. I'm with you. Right? Because they don't call it iTunes anymore. It's now Apple Podcasts. Oh, that's very true. Yes. yes. Okay. Uh, someone left a, a review. Okay. And uh, it's by Tyrell Co. C-O. I think it's by the Tyrell Company. Sounds like the Tyrell Company. Sounds like it's the Tyrell Company, which is loosely connected to Mandalay Industries, I think. I feel like we're in a movie reference that I'm not getting. Seinfeld, you definitely okay. don't get oh, it. Oh, yeah, don't, yeah. don't do Seinfeld jokes on me. <laughs> and uh, the Tyrell Company says, 
uh, well, it's it's entitled uh, Educational, Funny, Nerdy, dot, dot, dot. This podcast is none of these things. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, his, his uh, or their, I, I shouldn't say oh, his, yeah. right? Yeah, it's look there. at you, heteronormative. But, no, this is the entire Tyrell company wrote this. I only have so many words. And uh, their one comment is, it's always to the penis with you, Joshua. Um, right, so we're, we're, we're halfway. <laughs> I tell you, that, that joke, that, that fell fucking flat on its face. I don't even remember how we got there, Jason. <laughs> why, why are you saying all this as you're quietly crawling back into bed and putting your head on the pillow? Like, what's happening here? <laughs> But I tell you, it's been a lot of fun reading these reviews that people are leaving on uh, Apple Podcasts. So we want to thank everyone for doing that. And as we see more come in, we will definitely be sure to read them on air if we feel the urge to do so. Well said. Yes. Yeah, you and I feel the love. It's wonderful going around meeting listeners. Even even you know, to, to where we started this podcast, the good Alistair Walker is just starting to get into this podcast after being a, an interviewee on it. Yeah. He's thoroughly enjoying it. Even, you know, I say even, but I, I think part of it is just the nonsense, just the time that we have together, mm. the... The stuff that we say, it's the same stuff we say when we're driving across country uh, as we say when we're recording for the listeners. It's just the same type of nonsense that makes us laugh, gives us a wee chuckle. And yes, when that resonates and we actually find a listenership who enjoy that, ah, it's good. It's good, good, good. And here we are, you know, knocking on the door at the end of season three. We got one mailbag episode. Yep. When does this episode go live? The 20... Whatever uh, Wednesday is. 29th? Today's the 24th. Saturday's the 25th. Sunday's the 26th. Monday's the 27th. Tuesday's the 28th. Jason, is the 29th. I think somebody said that 30 seconds ago. And, <laughs> and so there are two days left. If you listen to this the day it drops or the day after it drops, you will have time to get a question in for the mailbag episode. Yes, because... January 31st is the cut-off. Exactly. Do you want to remind people who are maybe here for the very first time how they could send a a question in for the mailbag episode? Folks can email us, questions at One Nation Under Whiskey. They could reach out to us on Facebook, uh, on your app or on your computer. Go to the search bar, look for One Nation Under Whiskey. We have a group, we have a page. You can post a question in the group. You can send us a direct message, however you would like to do it. You can tweet at us at One Nation Whiskey, or you can send us an Instagram direct message, and our Instagram handle is at One Nation Under Whiskey. And uh, as a reminder, I don't know why I need to keep on reminding folk, but I will. We never use the E in the word whiskey. W-H-I-S-K-Y. It's true. I believe, as the kids say, our DMs are always open. Every dungeon master that we own (laughs) is open. (laughs) Diminutive mouse. Is that Mickey's cousin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. His wee cousin. They call him Dimmy. Dimmy, why you do this to me?
Like, why you do this to me, diminutive mouse? Why? Sometimes I feel like the listeners and I are just kind of like, like supplementary to what you're doing in this podcast. I feel like we could give you a microphone, not plug it into anything, and you would just have a blast. Fucking blast! Such good days to yourself. Oh my gosh, I could just listen to myself all day long. There's a there's a wonderful movie. I don't think it resonated particularly well with audiences, but I, I was always very fond of it. It was a Whoopi Goldberg movie oh. called... Jumpin' Jack Flash? You say that every time I bring this up. <laughs> and I want to say it was called The Kitchen or The Phone. Oh, I remember The Phone. I've told you about this <laughs> yes, before. Yes, you have, yeah. And it's just Whoopi Goldberg in her apartment. Mm. And she's like cooking, but she's doing it as if she's hosting a cooking show. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or she's moving around kind of narrating what she's doing. And that's the movie. It's just Whoopi Goldberg in her apartment. Uh But I I really think of you when I think of that movie. Because of how I act or because (laughs) I remind you of Whoopi Goldberg? Why not both? Why not both, Jason? Why not both? I love Whoopi. (laughs) All right. On that note. Do you need me for this? No. (laughs) I don't need you for any of this. (laughs) On that note, dear listeners, we wish you adieu. We say chin chin. We say bon chance. What other sort of goodbyes? What what do they say around the world? I don't know. How does Mickey say goodbye to Demean of Mouse, his cousin? Dimmy. Goodbye, Dimmy. <laughs> Cheerio, everybody. Cheerio. <laughs> chin chin. Two chins. Chin.